when you talk about George Bush, I mean, say what you want, the World Trade Center came down during his time. If you look Hold at on, Sandy that, Hook, you can't blame George Bush for that. He was president, okay? Don't blame him or don't blame him, but he was president. The World Trade Center came down during his reign. I would say familiarize yourself with all of the high hallmarks of Western culture because literally right now everybody has been put into the position of being professors of the humanities to hand down all of this inheritance that we have in Western culture. Okay, guys, welcome back to the Grimerica Show. We are going to be chatting with Joseph P. Farrell a little bit later. Uh, it's a good one. Kind of one of those ones um, that it's surprising it took us this long to get to. And uh, one of Graham's favorites, apparently. Uh, so, but first, as always, Graham, I can't just stop and start again, Dunlop. <laughs> hey, buddy. <laughs> heaters on thanks for oh yeah right it's still cold in the igloo cold yeah it's only june may yeah thanks for the the intro there how's it going over there my spider bites are getting better yeah you're right the swelling has gone down yeah darren's got some fucking crazy bites happening on his uh arm he thinks it's spiders and i think it was a spider yeah i think it got stuck in the sleeve between my sleeve and my shirt yesterday Mm. and it must not have must have venom or something. Because I didn't feel, feel it all, getting bit. You no, I didn't have feel a hard time waking up. I didn't feel getting bit. In any lucid dreams? It didn't hurt at the time. It didn't hurt till I woke up the next morning. Unless it happened while I was sleeping. Yeah. Could it that it could have got you know, I wonder if it got like if I rolled and squished it in there or something. Oh, or... I don't know. I don't know why. I don't I don't understand little spiders that bite like that. I've never had a spider bite. Really? Yeah. I get bit by shit sometimes. Just be your blood. Well, you live in the inner city and don't fucking go anyplace but concrete most of the day. Yeah. True. I live in nature's paradise here. <laughs> so there's bugs and stuff. Bugs, bugs, bugs. Look at that shit, though. Whatever it was fucking laid a beating on me. Yeah. It's still pretty itchy today. I'm just trying to stay away from it. And it's weird. Like, if you feel it, you feel like... You want me to feel it? Yeah. Ooh. You know, it's all... It's, like, all hard underneath each one. Yesterday, it was like you could feel it was, like, a big fucking... I was actually kind of worried last night when I went to bed that I was going to wake up this morning. With gangrene or something. Or it would be way worse and that I was going to end up at the fucking doctor or something. Yeah. Did you put anything on it? You should put some like tea tree oil on it or something like that, or or some. Uh... I put some stop pitch cream on it. So yeah, so yeah. This this episode is great with Joseph. We get into everything, big picture stuff. We get down to some nitty gritty stuff, and it was one of my favorites. Um, if you want to get there, you can look in the show notes and skip this whole intro. If you want to, there's a timestamp that gets you past this. We're going to read some listener emails and talk about some shit here for about half hour or so. You're really on that thing lately. What Just happened? to tell people that they, you know, like that it's there. What they can happened? skip through nothing. Is it that YouTube comment? No, no it was, wasn't it? It seemed no, to happen I just think since it's, that YouTube I think it's comment proper just to tell people what's going on. Some people really like it. Some people don't. I don't care either way. Hey, that guy actually that's, oh. No, I'm thinking of something else. Oh, yeah. The guy that said, 
bullshit up to 33 minutes or whatever he came back with a bunch of other comments like he's like i said well thanks, likes for, the thanks for listening buddy yeah that's fine i don't care if people listen to us or not well I, I care but i mean I, it's not gonna bug me it eats you up inside no it doesn't strange little man what do you got what do you got for me? No, I wanted to talk to you. You went up to Fort Mac to deliver oh. some. You're tweeting pics of your little U-Haul trailer and your truck, and you're yeah. taking some goodies up to Edmonton. How'd that go? Good. Gives made us it. an opportunity to say. I made it up there and back. Say our prayers are with all the people that lost their stuff. I guess. Their houses. Did, was anybody? Did anybody die up there? I think one, two people got killed in a car accident. Oh wow! So, but it wasn't like uh, the fire didn't really no kill a bunch of people. zero. Zero deaths, I think, caused by the fire. I guess that's kind of by the fire if it was because of the evacuation, but I don't know the full details. I know on the news they were saying no lives lost, is which any- is pretty phenomenal in itself. Oh, yeah, when 90,000 people have to evacuate. Down one, no there's only one lost? road. Yeah, There's only one road in and out of town. Really? D- yeah. South. South. You can go north, but those people that went north just had to wait a couple of days and head back south anyway because there's nowhere to go up there. There's nothing. The people who went north ended up staying in oil camps. Oh wow! For a week. Is there any like spiritual conspiracies going on about uh, Mother Nature? You know, I've heard a bit of that. Have you? Yeah, but I mean, honestly, the oil's not stopping. Didn't affect the oil. Like oh. that's the thing is when it comes down to it, the the fucking oil companies are probably more fucking competent than our government. Because if it wasn't for them, there probably would have been. More people dead or living in ditches or why, whatever. Why, why, well, why they took they everyone in. They they flew out all their own workers at their own expense and to open up the camp. Oh, I see. For um, evacuees. Oh, I see. And then fed them and clothed them for however long. Yeah, a lot of people pulled together, right, to help out? Yeah. It's pretty surprising how Alberta works like that sometimes. And then, uh, yeah, so oil helped out anyway. Helped out up there. Hmm. Well, that's what I was going to say. I was like, Fort Mac, Fort Mac will burn, but I guarantee you that fire won't get close to one of them oil plants. Fucking those oil companies will make fucking sure that they'll come up with something. You know what I mean? Money is no object. I don't know. The government seems to dawdle sometimes. And just like now, Russia, US, Mexico, all effort to come help. Russia offered to send, they're like, Putin. Was that real? Yeah. Yeah. Putin was like, I'll send water bombers right now. Wow. And we said no. We're really? Good. Yeah, we said no to U.S., Mexico, and Russia. Said we're good. Nothing. You, you can't help. Basically, the two of the super strongest nations on the world that we assume that they don't have anything, any better equipment or any better know-how at fighting forest fires. No, that's not why. I mean, they must have had it under control or something at the time. No, right, right? now I it's mean, still, still still out of control. No, it's twice really? as big as it was. It's just not. It's not facing the the city. The city anymore, or but it's still terrorizing. Like. I'll check right now, but as of last night, it was twice as big as it was. So why would we refuse their help then? Like, that's, I don't that's know. Crazy Trudeau had some Russia's nonsense. Russia's not too far, right? I mean, they can well, I think it's. Right. I think what he's saying is there's nothing they can really do. Because like, right now, I think what we're doing is we're basically saying we can't do... Uh, we can't do anything until the weather changes. Or you mean nobody can do anything until the weather changes? Is that what he's trying to say? I guess so. But I mean, Russia's probably got way better planes than we do. Imagine what a Russian water bomber looks like compared <laughs> to a Canadian water bomber. You know, I haven't seen the two of them, but I'm assuming theirs is better. We said the Mars. They got the more Mar- money, the Mar- more Mars they, bomber. better fucking technology and more Bush. 
They're the only people in the fucking world that have more bush than we do. Than Canada, yeah, probably. So it amazes me how dry it got in April, though, and in May. Yeah, no doubt. Even, like, even, uh, I think there was a bunch of people in Ontario, Manitoba evacuated now, too. Wow. Global warming's a bitch. I was just going to say the exact same thing. Where's the chemtrails? Where's yeah, the rainmakers? Where's, where's the rainmakers? I know. What the fuck's going on? I could have been. Where were those guys? Uh, I don't know. I guess they don't want to f- save the oil uh, oil lands. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. To me, it just seemed pretty foolish for to turn down. I mean, maybe there's more to it. Maybe I should look more into it, but it seems pretty foolish to turn down international help. Mm-hmm. Basically, he said, we're, we've got enough firefighters and stuff. Wasn't there a bit of a sort of a battle between the province and the feds and who's supposed to help out and who's supposed to be responsible for it. I don't know. No. Who uh, knows? Yeah. Who knows? Anyways, where our hearts I and our prayers go out to everybody that, uh, they, uh, they were transferring 50 million to the evacuees today. Hmm. Uh, Alberta red cross. That's how much they've taken in in a week. Wow. That's a dollar buck 50 a Canadian. Which reminds me, I owe someone a, a magnet. Oh, do you? Yeah. That's what that screenshot you got was about. Uh, what screenshot was that? The one you emailed me. Someone sent, emailed you a screenshot of the Red Cross donation. Oh, that's what that was. Oh, okay. Okay. So, yeah. That's a crazy little, uh, crazy week out in Alberta. Yeah. Floods. So that's like that Slave Lake burned five years ago, burned the town down. And three years ago, Calgary got flooded in Okotoks and High River. Well, and downtown Calgary. Don't forget about that's that. That's I said Calgary. Oh, okay. And now uh, Fort Mac, yeah. 20% of Fort Mac burnt out. Yeah. Huh. Mm. Hopefully nothing happens in Chestermere. Yeah. Well, we had the flooding last year while I was gone. Yeah. Both my neighbors flooded out. Yeah, and you're lucky nothing really happened to your house, eh? No. My old shitty house was good because it's smaller. The big ones, they had to dig a deeper foundation, so they had three feet of water and I had an inch. But wow. it didn't come out of the drain. Huh. So what do you got for me? Well, we got this. I want to get this uh, email uh, not out of the way because it's a great one, but I want to, I want to talk about it now. Um Cause I was out there chatting with some friends and like in this sort of CE5, uh, CSETI, you know, people that have gone out there and tried this and people go out there and they, they do these experiments, uh, CE5 protocols and, and shit happens to them and it's, oh. and it's happened to me. So I've got an email of a, of a listener who was listening and, and he's listening to some of the stuff I was talking about and he's tried some of his own experiences and experiments actually. And he's uh, emailed them in. So. Are you, uh, yeah, you're ready? I'm ready. I have no jingle. No jingle? Okay, I'll just uh, maybe, uh, we could do a spam gram jingle if you want. Oh, that one. Spam Graham, Graham. So, oh, Jesus. So he says, uh, Graham, I was just listening to the latest episode of the podcast and I heard you talk about your C-SETI experiences involving flashbulbs. 
I just wanted to write and let you know that I've participated in, in the protocols and I've seen and videotaped them. Thank you for talking about it. I'm pretty skeptical of Dr. Greer, nor do I know what to think of him, but all I can say is these experiences are very real and very strange. By hearing you talk about it, it has helped validate it even more for me and make me feel less crazy. Thank you. I'm going to copy and paste my story slash video experiment here for you to read and watch if you like. I'm not doing it for any attention, nor am I doing it to get on the podcast. I just figured you would like to hear some other people's stories on this matter. If not, no biggie. Keep up the good work. That's from Mark in Kansas City. You got on the podcast anyway, motherfucker. P.S. The flashbulbs are not the only experience I've had, but the only one I can really validate with other people. The strangeness is abound. There is strangeness abound, he says. <laughs> so this I still is, think you guys are seeing something normal. I think your eyes are just waking out from just staring at the sky for so long, wanting it so bad. Well, okay. This guy isn't staring at the sky, so that takes What's your theory. What's he staring at? He's doing it in, in his in his uh, inside meditating. What's he staring at? So I'll, I'll read the story. Okay, fine. Fuck, read Just, the story. But the PS. But did, this is all in the staring, PS. No, this is the story is starting now. The PS is done. But I want to tell you again, like when I was practicing the protocols out there on the big hill in the middle of, at at night, looking at the sky, like I saw flash bulbs a few mm-hmm. times. And so did people with me on my side of the circle, and then it happened on the other side of the circle. And this is a common theme. I can't theme, see it so because I'm a non-believer. You would have seen it if you were beside me, and you're not a non-believer. I don't you believe just try be, You just try no, be skeptical the city, it's your I'm, little thing. He said he's not. It's my little thing. <laughs> That's what she said. But I know, I know people as well have had experiences. Like you know, I'm not, they're not, I, I believe, they're not, you know, I'll give you experiences. I just right. don't think you're C-SETI and shit. There is a flashbulb trend, though. As much as weird. I want to think, believe that, that that's possible, I still think that that's just typical human arrogance. That's the same fucking thing as thinking fucking humans made global warming. It's the same little fucking no, flaw no, no, no. in your fucking brain someplace. And I'm not saying it's just in your brain. It's in everybody's brain. We have this fundamental flaw that the movie doesn't end when we do. No, that's not the same thing. This is consciousness. It's connecting. the same idea, though. No, I don't think so. I think that same thing that thinking the movie's over when you die is that same humans are responsible for global warming. I can fucking summon a UFO if I fucking believe enough. It's the same. It's not believing. It's not about belief. I can talk it's to about God. Intention. It's all the and same It's about thing. intention and meditation. Are you thinking that, that, some, that there isn't... Um, I'm well, saying there's a fundamental human into... flaw that makes us... Yeah. And these are all just different fucking variations of it or something. Yeah, like they're just different. No, just this is not coming the same. to light in different ways. I don't think it's the same. Okay, is telepathy well, the wrong. same then? And like out of body experiences and and media, no, mediumship no, and like no, after life communication. Now you're talking about like, a different thing. That's different. That to me is in a different camp. See, I think that's more in that, this camp. No, yeah, that's different. An out of body experience is nothing about human arrogance. You summoning a UFO because you believe it, or Stephen Greer doing it, is a, is to me. I'm not calling you arrogant, no, but there's not, a there's a there's a something the, else there. There's a thinking that there's you're more than you are. Is the same. No, sort of, I don't think so. I can see how you say that though. Okay. Yeah, I I, I get what you're saying, but I, I think don't all agree. that shit is all of the same. Hmm. I think it even fits in with global warming. I can tie it into global warming. <laughs> You'll have an easier time selling this to these fucking people who are all in at global warming. 
take them to your C-City, bam. No, it's just, it's not, I, I don't, I know what you mean, but it's not the same. Okay. It's on the same fucking side of the park. No, it's not. It's it's on the same park? side as it's on the same side as as consciousness not being you know generated by your brain, right? The duality of it. It's on the same side of the after death communication. And all like if you can communicate with some other presence somewhere, then if it's who knows where it's from, it's just something some other intelligence communicating. I'm not saying that they're from Zeta Reticuli or whatever, but you're connecting with something beyond yourself. Or you're connecting with yourself. <laughs> okay, you ready? Yeah. So, story. And connecting with yourself can be pretty fun, too. Just make sure you have a towel. <laughs> My first CE5, which is Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind, experience. Ex- slash experiment. So, the following is my first CE5 experiment slash experience. I grouped all these little events into one big event because they all tie together. It took close to six months or so for my experience, experiment to be completed. Where's the... Uh, so, it all started with the movie Serious. I'd recently had two UFO encounters with physical craft up close and personal. And I learned about this new UFO movie that was about to be released. When do I get my 10 bucks back from that? I I just got started on this. I remember splurging for that. I remember exciting and waiting for it it to come out because it was just all this groundbreaking shit. Nothing. Anyways, he uh, he streamed it through an internet service called Yurka. I thought in my mind, it's starring the same man who organized Disclosure Project, so this has to be legit. So I decided to pay the small fee to stream it online and watch. I thought the movie was great and informative, but I was a bit skeptical about this weird part about contacting ETs using your mind. What the hell was that all about? What kind of crazy stuff is this? What are these crazy hippies thinking? Why would anybody believe this stuff? These are the questions going through my mind. I'm not a believer of organized religion, and at the time I felt like I was watching some weird religious cult type of thing. But for whatever reason, it intrigued me, especially when I figured out that you can try this thing called CE5 on your own for free. This made me take it a little more seriously. I don't trust paranormal claims with a price tag. So, yeah, regardless, I think people should just put aside their views of Greer right now and whatever. Like, this is not about him. This is about the protocols and just people trying to make contact, right? You can't sell me. I'm not trying to. I'm just, this is for everybody else, not you personally. Okay, so after watching some example videos and researching the protocols... On SeriousDisclosure.com, I tried to give it a try. It took some time to convince myself because I felt like I was doing some cuckoo stuff that I needed to be in hiding so none of my friends and family would label me as crazy. Since I was living in Chicago, I, tried, I decided to try it out in my living room of my apartment away from the commotion of the city. For whatever reason, the videos of the flash bulbs, a random flash of light like a camera flash that doesn't have a source, were intriguing, and I thought to myself... I can get one on video. So I decided to take a cell phone camera and point it at a plain non-reflective wall with nothing on it that could possibly produce a flash of any kind. I also did it at nighttime, closed all the blinds, turned off all the lights, and did it while no one else was in my apartment. Do we I have f- the video? Yes. Do we have it? I probably forwarded it to you and you, haven't, you don't read it, right? But yeah, I, I, have, it, I have it here, yeah. Forward it to me. Right now? Yeah, I want to watch it while you're talking. Uh, and I was assuming the video would be in the show notes. Because it's just another thing to distract you Will from the, the video be in the show notes? 
Yes, the video will be in the show notes. And he's also got a skeptical. Oh, I Why is it not working here? How are you going to do that? Is it a YouTube video? Uh, I don't know. We might have to put it on the YouTube channel. I don't think you can upload. You know what I mean? Or, or I guess we could. I don't know how to do that. Okay. Anyways, don't worry about that right now. It'll just be the same link. Oh, it's not. You're about to override Thunderbird. I don't, what? That's okay. Okay. It's okay. Okay. So where was I? Okay. So hmm, I thought to myself, I can get on video, take a cell phone camera. Okay. I also did it at nighttime. I found a YouTube video of one of Dr. Greer's meditations and decided to use it. I started and unfortunately didn't make it through because my iPad ran out of batteries. Face palm. I got a little frustrated and almost convinced myself that I should just stop doing this nonsense. But I decided to try again after a little charge. So I tried again. I had the camera set up and recording and I made it through the whole meditation. I followed the protocols as best I could. I suspended all disbelief and intended to work. I projected a message slash thought asking them to please communicate with me via my camera. I did a CTS, which is the coherent thought sequencing. Envisioning your location on Earth and rising up that spot in the space, like you're operating Google Maps. And make sure they know that my purpose was for education reasons and to help me grow. Afterwards, I grabbed the camera and walked into my kitchen, turned all the lights off, and watched the video, not knowing what to expect. About a minute or so in, I spotted the exact thing I was looking for, a flashbulb. It jumped out at me, and right away, and there was my oh shit moment. I couldn't believe it worked. I just stared in disbelief. There was no way anything in that room could have produced that flashlight. I made 100% sure of it. But yet, it was the exact same thing I saw in Dr. Greer's video. My mind was spinning. What did I just see? I quickly calmed down and reminded myself that it could be just a camera glitch, and I can't jump to any conclusions. Despite my skepticism, I still needed to know, so I started to dig. First, I searched for hours on the internet, researching a variety of camera glitches and watching videos, getting very familiar with what they looked like, and I could not find anything that matched a single point of light, flashing like a camera, randomly, one time within a 30-minute video. So next, I showed it to some coworkers who were open-minded enough to chat about these subjects, and one of them suggested that I try and be scientific about it, see if I can keep replicating it. Being someone who likes and trusts in science, I thought it was a great idea. So I decided to try it again. I set up experiment number two, and I had success again. Same process and same results. I got two different flashes, both with different colors and shapes. Astounded, I immediately set up experiment three, and again, same process and same results. Now I'm really starting to wonder what's going on. Could this all be real? Experiment number four was unfortunately unsuccessful because I believe I treated it too much like a game. I told my brother about what was going on, and I think I was more concerned with impressing him, forgetting that if indeed I was communicating with something, I still needed to be respectful. I was a little disappointed that number four didn't work, and wondered if, I, if reality was about to kick in and I realized I'm just fooling myself. Regardless, I continued on with experiment number five, and this one is a very important experience. It was more than successful. It made me realize there is way more weird than I anticipated. This was the first time that I felt what I call the energy, which makes it sound kind of silly, but I don't know how to put it in words exactly. So that will have to do. During the meditation, I felt the hairs stand straight up on my arm and my sense that something was there with me kicked in pretty heavily. 
Then a jolt of energy shot through me that was so intense I can't put it exactly into words. It hit me like a taser and had this weird combination of qualities. It was like something orgasmic along with a rush of doing a line of cocaine. Yes, I tried it once in college, but more intense. It's a slippery slope. It started at my forehead and flowed straight down my neck, belly, and overtook me. I still can't fully express what it felt like. I just feel goofy trying to. After coming back to reality from my energy burst, I checked the video and found another flashbulb, except this one was different. There were two lights side by side. My mother thought they looked like eyes. They were neon aqua blue and neon purple, and I just had this sinking feeling in my gut that this wasn't a camera glitch. My mind was skeptically asking questions, but my intuition knew what I just experienced was real. This wasn't just a misfire of my brain or a camera glitch. Camera glitch. I felt it and experienced it. This was no longer a cool little video phenomenon. It was something that affected me on a personal level. I continue to talk to people, including a few of my adult students. I was teaching private guitar lessons at the time. One whom was a psychologist and a very smart man. He was very intrigued by my story and suggested to me that I start treating it like a science experiment. I'm not, I'm not a scientist and I don't pretend to be. And tried to, to try to get flashbulb on multiple cameras. He told me that I need to have experiment, an experiment group and a control group. Hence why I labeled them experiments. And see what happens when I record a video with no meditation. So that is exactly what I did. I did a total of 10 experiments and 9 controls with 3 different cameras, 2 cell phone, 1 digital camera, 1 camera per experiment and control. 9 of the 10 experiments were successful and were captured on all 3 cameras and the flash bulbs showed up in 2 of the 9 controls. He says, side note here, it showed up on the last couple control videos and it was near the end of the whole experience. So I was thinking the, in quote, beings... I was thinking of the beings a lot more, and I feel whatever it is possibly knew I was thinking about them. Maybe they were connected to me more than I thought, question mark. Hmm. They came in a variety of shapes and colors, and just two of them had energy bursts associated with them. I had a friend edit me all down in my videos and put them in one short video so I could share it, so he gives us the video there. Watching the video will give you a glimpse into the experience, but now I want to share what else I did to help validate how strange these videos really were. During my experience, I consulted some people whom I thought would have some extra expertise in digital slash cell phone videos, see if they could identify the flash bulb and explain what it really was. First, Put it on YouTube. If there's an explanation, you'll have it. First. I, After you get called a scumbag. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a bunch of times, but. Well, no, he, okay, that's a good spot for me to remember to talk about uh, Alex Sakaris's, uh skeptical website right he's been on the show a couple times this guy um also mark also put it uh in skeptical's forum so there's people discussing and going back and forth in the forum it's pretty cool he laid the whole thing out in the forum so i want to watch the video wanna, yeah so if people want to give me the video before you talked about this oh. well i sent it to you just now it's, it's, it's good, but you'll, you'll, you'll be, you'll probably won't, uh, you know, I mean, it's not like this big flashbulb. It's just little flashbulbs, right? In the dark. It's hard to, you know. It's hard to see. No, it's not hard to see. It's just not like a fucking craft flying through the air or something like that, right? I'm not expecting it to be. No. It's good that he's documented it. So anyways, 
He took his cell phone to a... a, a Him and Ephraim need to get together. I wonder yeah. if there's a correlation between flash bulbs and ice spikes. <laughs> uh, so he did post it on YouTube as well, just so you know. Yeah, that's good. All right, so let me finish off here. I'm almost done. So first he took, his, uh, took the cell phone into a Verizon wireless store and spoke with an employee. They were alone in the store, and I felt like he could be, I could be honest with her, so I told her about the CE5 and what I had gotten on my camera. I shared the videos to her and she could not explain it all. She said she's never seen anything like that happen. Didn't have an explanation and actually was a little <laughs> freaked out by the whole thing. <laughs> Secondly, I took my phone to a cell phone repair point, shop. Point. Nobody that works at the place that you get your phone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Second, I took my phone to a cell phone repair shop and pre pretended like I had no idea what was wrong with the camera. I told the clerk, I have these weird flashes of light appear on my screen. Do you know what's causing it? And showed him a few of the videos. He had no idea what was causing it, and he had never seen anything like it before. He told me I needed to download a new video app and see if that would fix it. That was all the advice he gave me. I didn't really bother to tell him any more because I didn't Wait feel a second, like a new video app. What kind of phones are you using here? Uh, it, go it goes on. He used uh, digital cameras and two cell phones. What kind of cell phones? Well, for, for this Verizon's not a type of cell phone. I don't know what type of cell phone, actually. I don't think. Did he not? I didn't well, those Androids have funky cameras. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. So, third uh, cell phone. So, third, I called a second cell phone repair shop and described the random flashes of light. Actually, I missed the other part. I didn't really bother him. This is back at the first camera repair store. He says the cell phone repair shop he says i didn't really bother to tell him anymore because i didn't feel like he was the type of person that could get into this sort of thing and i wanted to see if he could easily recognize it as a camera glitch without any influence third i called a second repair shop and described the random flashes of light that were appearing in my videos and wondered if they had heard such a thing the girl on the phone said she never heard anything like that and i said really in all your experience and probably hundreds of customer service calls you've received you've never heard of a glitch like this and she replied no never i found this rather strange Fourth, I met a woman during a rehearsal dinner for a family member's wedding, and she did up teaching digital photography and video at the University of Missouri. So naturally, I asked her about my videos. I described them to her and showed her still pictures from a few of them. I didn't make the YouTube video yet, and I didn't have the videos with me. And even she couldn't explain what was going on. She was very intrigued by them. I asked her, how do you know that I didn't fake this? She replied, trust me, I would know. I can tell you didn't. I then asked the possibility of it being a glitch. She then explained to me that the flashbulbs occurred in different quadrants of the frame from video to video, which didn't match the characteristics of a normal glitch. She explained that usually glitches will remain in the exact same spot and continuously to do the same thing, not happen randomly once or twice in different locations throughout multiple videos on three different cameras. Would this be true of glitches in the Matrix as well? Yeah, probably, eh? Fifth, I joined a Facebook group related to UFO topics and posted my YouTube video. Right away, one of the group administrators messaged me very politely and told me that he works with CGI and special effects. He wanted to re review my video, probably to make sure I'm not a hoaxer. And I told him, please do. I would love to have your opinion. He messaged me saying that experience number five was really strange. He explained that when you move a video screen shot to shot, that the pixel shifted move, which is called noise. He then said the flashbulb flashed in and out within three frames, and during those frames, the pixels didn't move. It did something it wasn't supposed to do. He seemed perplexed by this, and it was enough for me to realize that he couldn't seem to explain it either. 
He then went on and commented on my initial post, assuring people that I wasn't a hoaxer. After all this stuff, in a nutshell, this was my first CE5 experience. It took a long time for me to go through all of this and come to grips with the reality of the situation. It forever changed me and started me on to the realization that our consciousness is more than the brain. The I that resides in you is the real you, and you are them. We are one, the creator and the created. Finally, I wanted to say this whole flashbulb experience has been officially confirmed for me. I have now, on a few different recent occasions, have seen things in person with my own eyes. One of them with other people seeing them too. Each time after meditation and an intentional attempted contact. So what it comes down to for me is this. Camera glitches don't happen outside the camera and figments of the imagination don't appear on cameras. So that's it, man. Why Thanks. Not? Thanks, Mark. That's an, that's, uh, is an oxymoron nowhere? No. Yeah. Th- figments of your imagination don't appear on camera, Darren. Or maybe your imagination. If I can manifest my own reality, which is the argument, <laughs> then. So there you have it. Isn't that exactly what it is, though? It's all just a figment to your imagination. No, it's not, Darren. Well, we don't have time for your MUFON report. Uh, that that'll be, uh, that, that covers the MUFON report. I'll save the MUFON report for next time. MUFON. So yeah, there you have it. So this is uh. So when next time I go and see City, I'm gonna see City. I'm gonna focus on the flashbulb thing. I'm gonna ask for flashbulbs and communication. I'll report back to you, Derek. (coughs) No, film it. Well, yeah, you try. I want a a flashbulb like a fucking eighteen eighteen fifties fucking uh, camera. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. When that was like a small explosion, I think they actually fucking burned magnesium. It is a strange like phenomenon, though, in the C-City groups, the flashbulb thing. It really is. You can see quite a few of them on on uh, the internet too of people having these. Hmm. I wonder if it's a just a subtle way to communicate. That was a great email, either way. Yeah, yeah. Thanks yeah. for that. I'm gonna watch the video. Um, yeah, send in if anyone else is doing experiments like Efrain and. Sorry, what was his name? Mark. Mark. Yeah, and I'll um. Oh, am I supposed to say his name, Mark? I hope. I hope that's okay. Yeah, he didn't say anything else. Did you say his last name? Just don't. No, say I don't want to say his last name. So, anyways, you can uh, check out the skeptical for, skeptico forum as well. And then uh, before we finish this uh, intro off, we should talk about our upgrade program. We're trying to raise funds for a new recording computer, and we're almost there. We're like three quarters of the way, probably. Yeah, we're selling like thirty these tickets raffle tickets. 35, then, 30 or 35 tickets less to so go grab a bunch today. And then you have a chance of coming on uh, the show with a guest of your choice and an iPad and a bunch of swag. Some shirts, yeah. mouse pad, yeah. cup. That's all going to be in the show notes under gramerica.ca slash upgrade. And come on the show with a guest you're choosing pending availability. And uh, yeah, all that fun stuff. You could get it for 20 bucks or get three shots at it for 50. There is no limit on tickets, so you could buy uh, all 30 tickets. I'll tell you what, if anyone wants to buy the rest of the tickets, I'll give them to them for 500, 400 for all the rest. (laughs) That's a good idea, actually. So... But we do want to keep this ad free and, and we don't have any sponsorship or any portals. And we really, really appreciate everybody's help in raising money to keep the show going and to upgrade our equipment here. Especially our monthly subscribers. Those are the guys who really pay uh, 
pay the monthly pay the bills. bills. We, yeah. we appreciate all our donations, obviously, but our monthly subscribers are the guys who uh, we can really count on and budget around. So uh, yeah. if you're not a monthly, sign up for one today. America.ca slash support. Enjoy the chat, guys. No, no I got oh. one more thing to say. We got the No Agenda meetup. A lot of a lot of our listeners listen to the No Agenda show as well, and I'm not, you know, an advertising for them, but we are going to Red Deer for a meetup, the No Agenda meetup. The show, the link is in the show notes. There's a few of us going already. We'll probably carpool up from Calgary. Um, some other No Agenda listeners will be there. We'll have some great chat for a few hours. And how many people are going? Uh, f- six at least. Six. Yeah. What did I say, 10? Yeah, I think so. So It's getting there. Yeah. The good thing is there's a bunch of people that have signed up that aren't going, which helps us... Uh, Build the, the community. F- yeah, exactly. So, yeah, thanks a lot. And en- enjoy this chat with Joseph P. Farrell. It's one of my favorites. And I was fish pumping. I mean, fish, fish, fish pumping. was double fish pumping, <laughs> which I... Well, you'll see. Enjoy the chat. <laughs> So tonight on the Grand America show, we have Joseph P. Farrell actually finally coming on the show. We were just talking about how uh, we almost had him on a little year and a half ago. He's got a doctorate in patristics from the University of Oxford, and he pursues research in physics, alternate history, all kinds of strange stuff. He's written like a dozen books, pretty fascinating stuff, all kinds of topics. Two dozen. (laughs) I was going to say dozens, but wow yeah it's and it's deep stuff it's great and his latest two like just came out one of these darren has particular interest in is rotten to the common core and then the other one is hidden finance rogue network and secret sorcery 9-11 the fascist international penetrated operations so man there's tons to talk to you about joseph we're really happy that you uh you're on the show thanks for coming on yeah thanks for having me on guys yeah, and, and I was uh, just mentioning to you there about your website. I kind of wanted to to start off with, um, I love how you've built this this uh, website around your research, and, and you kind of give these weekly, almost like a, I don't know if you'd call it like a ge- geopolitical update, but you call it uh, news and views from the Nefarium or something like that. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and it's just, it's great to have another source of somebody who's just kind of logical and you're not afraid to speculate and then you have this community around you and then you've got all your topics and your books. Do you want to talk a bit about how, how that whole site is laid out and, and what you're up to there? Well, the site is, um, I do daily blogs on on the public area and then in the members area, I do bi-weekly vid chats. I do post occasionally from time to time some 
papers on some speculations. I do webinars uh, occasionally in the website members area on different topics. Uh, I did a lengthy one on Islam. I did another one on material science and consciousness, believe it or not. Um, it's an interesting community that that we've built up there because people send me articles and what you see me blogging about are I'm blogging about articles that people send me. So it's actually kind of a community driven uh, website in a certain in a certain sense. Um, it's it's a really interesting website. I blog about just about everything from alternative technologies to uh, alternate alternate history, like I talk about in the books, to geopolitics and what's going on in the world, or you know what I think may be going on. Let's put it that way. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting little community. Yeah, that, well, that's what I like about um, the news and views from the Nefarium there, is you kind of lay out, um, you know, stuff that people sent you, and then you sort of put it all together, like there was the last couple were really good, and then, you, and then you're not afraid to go, okay, now I'm going to speculate a little bit here about what might be going on, and I mean, it sounds pretty logical to me. Yeah, it, it's it's like I say, it's a very, very interesting community. We get a lot of... Um, we get a lot of commentary from people, you know, that have their own theories. So, you know, I, I, I try and let everybody have their say on the website. About the only thing I, I don't tolerate on the website is, you know, the the people that want to come on and just abuse other people or me or whatever. But, yeah, it's, it's an interesting website. Yeah. So d did you find yourself shifting towards your earlier books and research on alternate history and the Nazis and stuff like that into more of a geopolitical thing? Like, especially just lately with how interesting global politics has become. Have you kind of been sucked into that vortex a little bit? Well, not really. Um, the way I approach it is, and, and attempt to, from time to time to do, is to show that geopolitics really doesn't make any sense unless you factor in considerations that I write about in my books. Uh, let me give you a, a for example there. Yeah, yeah. Um, the biggest thing that, that one of the biggest things that I've written about in, in some of my recent books is what I am calling a hidden system of finance yeah. that, that I believe was put into place by president Truman in 1947 utilizing recovered Axis loot. And this this booty, basically, was kept entirely off the books and turned over to the running of the National Security Council. So effectively what he did was he put the intelligence community of the United States into the international banking business. And that intelligence community, in turn, was in bed with you know post-war Nazis, uh, post-war Japanese yakuza, and uh, you know basically remnants of of the imperial Japanese elite. And this has had over the decades, I think, a huge effect, not only on the financial system, but also on on American geopolitics. Because when you crawl into bed with with fascist devils, you're going to start making decisions and doing geopolitical things that are just, you know, not in the national interest. So there's that aspect and, and playing into that aspect of things. And I go into this in, in the most recent book on nine 11, you have the Russians in particular kind of pointing out from time to time that 
the West, and in particular the United States, it has become hostage to something that is not necessarily American or even representative of any other nation state. Um, let me give you some four examples. Mm -hmm. Um, the Russian economics advisor to President Putin, a fellow by the name of Sergei Glazyev, as, as the mess in the Ukraine was, was unfolding, came out with a lengthy op-ed piece. I forget where it appeared. I think it was in global, uh, global Research News, where he said, our problem isn't with the Nazis in Kiev, it's with the Nazis in Washington. <laughs> and, and in the context, he meant it. This was not simply a rhetorical, you know, hyperbolic turn of phrase. It was, it was an actual conclusion that he had come to. Uh, prior to 9-11, one of Putin's advisors, economic, an economic, econo pardon me, I can't talk, an economist by the name of Dr. Tatiana Koryagina had come out with a statement that the United States was going to be victimized by a, and these are kind of paraphrasing her words, a global network with $300 trillion in assets. <laughs> So in other words, the Russians have been giving us clues that, that they know that there's another player on the field that's not necessarily connected with any one nation. It's, it literally is a kind of international mafia, or as I've been calling it, a, a Nazi international. And like all mafias, you know, it's got its, it's got its capos and its factions, and occasionally they cooperate with each other, and occasionally they shoot at each other. So, you know. So yeah, I think I think the geopolitics story is is a part of it, and the real clue here is is if you're if you're dealing with a hidden system of finance, you know we've been we've been hearing for decades about all the hyperinflation that's going to you know overtake the world and doom the dollar. We've been hearing about this since Nixon took the USA off of Bretton Woods, and all of these predictions of doom and gloom don't happen. You know, we've been hearing this since the bailouts, and yet mm -hmm. it hasn't happened. And the question is why? Well, for for my way of thinking, when you have trillions of dollars in a hidden system of finance that is part of a global international underground financial system, if you're a conventional economic or financial analyst, what you're doing is is you're analyzing things from the point of view of only the public system of finance. In other words, you're missing 50 yes. to 80% of the picture, yeah. and therefore your analysis is going to be hopelessly skewed and horribly flawed. So I don't think, you know, tying all this together, I don't think you can have a, a good geopolitical picture or a good financial picture without taking into consideration some of these things that, that alternative researchers have been talking about. And, and for me, that's the bottom line. Wow, that's well said. So that, that really puts it into perspective for me because I, I try to try to tease apart the, uh, the multinational kind of, like you said, the, the hidden system that's sort of in the, in the dark compared to just the national interests that are sort of more in the public. Like a lot right. of times when people get all tied up in the national interests and the right and left. And yet I've always thought there's this deeper, deeper, like you say, hidden system of finance. That's the perfect way to put it. But that goes, that goes beyond um, central banking and the, and the, uh, the loaning money to the nations and all that. Right. That would be, right. that would be sort of more of the, 
unethical, corrupt, like public system of finance, but you're not talking about that, right? No. Do those, no. they don't really belong in that group. There's another one running in behind, right? There's another one running behind and it's, it's crucial to understand why this was set up, what it was for and who's involved. As I indicated, it's, it was set up by President Truman officially, formally, in, in 1947. I think it has its actual beginnings much earlier than that. But yeah, that's yeah. really kind of the formal beginning as far as the American national security complex is, is involved. The in CIA Oregon. was created then too, right? That yeah, is, that the, is that where the Rumsfeld money went then too? Remember when he said that they were missing oh, yeah. a couple trillion dollars? Did it just oh, get think, dumped yeah. into there? I think I think a lot of this has to do with that. Um, you know, Catherine Austin Fitz has approached this whole subject from a very different approach, but come to similar conclusions. And what it means, in effect, let's go back to to 1947 and the American national security state and the mentality that they would have had. If you're looking at the strategic problems that they're facing at the time, you've got the obvious one being the communist bloc. And then in my thinking, a not so obvious one to most people, but that is that by that time they would have become aware of the continuation of post-war Nazism, not simply as a, a group of Nazis huddled in their grass huts wearing their grass skirts in the Amazon basin, you know, mm-hmm. hiding out from, from justice. But what I mean by it is is a literal well-organized extraterritorial state, as it were. continuing to conduct some of its own research. I think the record is very clear once you are willing to examine it, that this is what they're doing. And this in turn requires an intelligence network that is global. It requires a financial system based on all that loot that they plundered from Europe during the war. So that's one aspect. And that's another strategic problem then that that the national security apparatus is confronting. Mm. The third one is, is UFOs. Yeah. You've got a huge UFO problem, and for these guys, they're going to view this as a potential threat, and as a result of that, they're going to set up what I think is is a mega Manhattan project on steroids to, to, to create the technologies to emulate the performance characteristics of UFOs. In other words, it's, it's classical gunboat diplomacy. But to do this, they know that they're going to need a huge amount of finance, and it's going to have to be completely off the books. They can't go out and tax America or the United Kingdom or Canada or Australia to death, you know, in order to create these technologies. So they set up a huge system of of private finance, of hidden finance, in the hands of the intelligence community to fund covert operations against the communist bloc, and more importantly, to fund a a black research projects over several decades that's going to run to the trillions of dollars so we're back to um we're back to dr coriogana's statement that she made shortly before 9 11 that there's a global group with assets in the trillions of dollars that are going to carry out attacks on american soil this is what she says so yeah what that means is by the nature of the case, you're going to have to have the participation of major prime banks in the West in this system. And they're going to have this participation is going to have to be with their knowledge and consent at some level. Right. 
So if you look at the major banks that have been in the headlines lately, who do you see? Well, you see Deutsche Bank, you see Morgan, you see Hong Kong, Shanghai Bank, and so on and so forth. Well, these are the banks that, if you examine this hidden system of finance, are precisely the banks involved with it. So, yeah, there's a lot going on, and I don't think that when you factor in the existence of that hidden system, when you factor in all of those dirty intelligence deals that were made between the United States and and surviving Nazi intelligence groups uh, after the war, that when you factor all this in, you're dealing with, quite literally, a huge hidden system of finance that in turn is related to some sort of global network with with i'll be very blunt with with a very kind of fascist ideological outlook and you know i'm not talking simply about surviving germans or nazis i'm talking about the sullivan and cromwell crowd in the united states you know the dulles brothers and and uh people like mccone and and john j mccoy and so on and so forth that that are big wheeler wheeler dealers in the post-war american intelligence national security state establishment and this, I think, is is to borrow a phrase from from Richard Dole. I was just going to say, yeah, to to borrow his insights. Um, he talks in some of his UFO books about the idea that with this much money over time, you might be looking at a group of people that is a, a kind of a breakaway civilization unto themselves, with access to a hidden system of finance, to hidden technologies. And that they have essentially pulled away from their hosting nation states. Well, if you go back to what I've said in, in my book, The Nazi International, this is precisely the pattern yeah. that you see being exhibited by this post-war Nazi outfit. You know, they're doing all this advanced research. They're doing it in uh, different host nations, but but they are doing it independently of any of them. And, and they have their own access to intelligence and, and lots of money. And technology. And technology, yes, exactly. Yeah, I was just going to say that that sounds like it's another word for or another way to describe the secret space civilization or the secret space program, really. Right, yeah, yeah exactly. Wow. Yeah, that's that's just, that's fascinating. What do you think, Darren? <laughs> so... So how about now? Is there is there some competition at that higher level with with let's let's just say what was coming to mind for me too is there's hundreds of trillions being traded on the market now too and in, in speculation and derivatives mm-hmm. and all this is that creating mm-hmm. a conflict at the top too with all these like with a whole other with a whole other um, generation of billionaires really? Yeah, I think I think very definitely this is an excellent question because. I've been entertaining for several years the the hypothesis that this global group, since it is a mafia, that portions of it can turn against other portions yeah. and that there can be actual factional infighting. And this, I think, has been going on uh, quite literally since 9-11. Um, I think that you see little signs here and there that if you look and ponder them carefully and closely – are indicators that something like this is taking place. Let me give you another example yes, of, what, of what I'm talking about. Uh, if you go back to the 2008 bailout hearings in this country, yeah. uh, you'll recall that the bankers were getting up in front of Congress and saying, well, we need X, X trillion dollars of, of money to fix this problem, but we can't 
have any oversight, okay? And when I heard that, I thought, why no oversight? And the conclusion I came to was that this is the type of behavior of people with a gun to their heads. It's very similar to a kidnapping victim being asked to raise so many millions of dollars for ransom. And, you know, if you bring the police along when we make the exchange, well, you know, then the deal's off. So it's that kind of behavior that that has kind of clued me in that there may be something real and significant taking place in the background of some real struggles, some real factional infighting going on. We've seen this with the behavior, the strange behavior of the Obama administration over the past eight years. You know, there was the war party in this country that was literally clamoring for for a war in Syria, then Iran. He's mm. headed that off. We've seen uh, essentially purges in the American command staff. Uh, you've seen you've seen this very weird dance that's been going on in the Ukraine. Uh, you know that whole mess that was basically American doing, and then you see the sudden shift in policy. Hillary Clinton resigns. John Kerry's brought in. He flies off to Russia to try and smooth things over. And on and on this goes. I think there's some real factional infighting, in other words, going on hmm. within this international mafia, fascist international, whatever you want to call it. Cabal? Uh, can we call cabal. it a cabal? Yeah, you can, sure. You can call it a cabal, a conspiracy, you know, uh, any of these things would apply to it. And I, I really do think the key here is is possibly 9-11 itself, because in my view— and I, I had this view on the day of 9-11 itself. In my view, we were looking at not a two-tiered operation, but a three-tiered operation. Hmm. Uh, you, had, you had, of course, the first tier with the, the hijackers, the patsies, you know, flying their airplanes into buildings. Yeah. At the deeper layer, you had a rogue element within the American national security state that actually orchestrated and planned the event, in my opinion, and, and made it happen. Yep. And then you had a third layer that had penetrated the operation and served notice at some point during 9-11 itself that it had done so. So, can you, you know, can you explain that part a little bit sure. more? Sure. The, the, if you look at 9-11, there are certain features of it that don't appear to be terrorism. And, and everybody in the 9-11 truth community that I've, I've read seems to be of the opinion that this was an orchestrated false flag event to project American power into the Middle East, all of the project for the new American century that was the project of a bunch of neocons. Mm -hmm. And... Okay, that analysis, as far as I'm concerned, is true as far as it goes. But then you would not have needed, for example, to bring the Twin Towers down in order to accomplish that objective. Simply flying airplanes yes, into the yes, buildings, yeah. creating a traumatic loss of life and so on and so forth would yeah. have been enough for this to be done. When the towers come down, you're dealing with overkill. Oh, and I that see what was. You're yeah, that to me was the signal that you're dealing with a different group altogether that has penetrated the operation and served notice. The other thing that, that is really key here is if you look at the behavior of the American executive branch, particularly Dick Cheney and, and President Bush on 9-11, yeah. 
Bush is sitting there very calmly at Emma Booker Elementary School reading My Pet Goat. And the official narrative has it that Andrew Card comes in, says, Mr. Mr. President, America's under attack. And he sits there and he keeps reading. Andrew, uh, not Andrew Card, um, Ari Fleischer, his press secretary, holds up a card and says, don't say anything yet. And so he finishes the photo op and then he makes a brief press statement at Emma Booker Elementary School that America is under some sort of terrorist attack and that he's going back to Washington. All right. Mm -hmm. But some at some point between his departure from the elementary school on the way back to Air Force One, the thing changes. Air Force One is literally scrambled out of Sarasota with no fighter protection. And there is indication that somebody called the White House switchboard and said that the president was next and indicated their bona fides by giving out a number of top secret U.S. code names from various departments of the federal government, the DEA, the FBI, the CIA, the National Reconnaissance Office, and so on and so forth. So what happens? Bush at that point flies immediately to Barksdale Air Force Base in Louisiana, and then from there flies on to Offutt Air Force Base in Omaha, Nebraska. Now, why is this significant? At Barksdale, he jettisons the press corps. He gives a statement which needs to be scrutinized very carefully because at Barksdale, he makes no mention whatsoever of terrorism. All he refers to are attacks and a test. And then he flies on to Offutt Air Force Base. Now, these two bases are very significant because Barksdale is the backup command base for STRATCOM, for Strategic Command. Mm -hmm. Offutt Air Force Base is the headquarters for Strategic Command. And on 9-11 itself, the entire U.S. military was having a full-scale nuclear alert drill. In other words, we had not been on this state of heightened nuclear alert since the Cuban Missile Crisis. All of our submarines, our nuclear submarines, all of our bombers, all of our missiles were a part of this drill. Now, when you put these two things together, people calling in, to the White House switchboard, indicating that they have possession of top secret codes across the length and breadth of the American security state, and you're running nuclear drills, the possibility is then that these people can flip those drills live. So President Bush has to go to these bases to reassert personal presidential control mm -hmm. over the American command structure. And this means, quite bluntly, that there is a third level involved in 9-11 that is flipping and penetrating the whole operation and flipping it inside out. So the second the second tier didn't even really expect the towers to right. collapse. They just expected the planes to fly into them. I yeah, that's one way of looking at it. Or they may have they may have wired the towers for a collapse. Because I, I think you have to look carefully at the four different mechanisms out there in the 9-11 truth community for, for their collapse, controlled demolition, nanothermite, mini-nukes, and directed energy. And you'll notice that with each of those four levels, as the mechanism becomes more technologically sophisticated, the, the, the people that would have access yeah, to them yeah. dwindles. 
So in other words, by the time you're reaching mini nukes or, or exotic energy weapons, you're dealing with a very sophisticated group that that may not even lie within the American command structure. And this this brings us back to our, our whole breakaway civilization, uh, you know, international mafia type of idea. And I, I do think that this is precisely what happened, that that third level served notice on 9-11 itself, that, you know, the marker had come due and we're serving our divorce papers, here you go, and, and this is what we can do. Wow. And it's hard to ignore that more extreme of the four, the four types that directed energy or right. some sort of because if you if you really look at it in that light and you see those videos of of the uh, like where did all the steel go like D- Darren yeah. puts up steel he's an iron worker and this is kind of what caught his attention on nine eleven like you know we go through yeah. years and years where you sort of pay attention to a little bit of the the nine eleven stuff and I've I've never you know, believe the, the mainstream view of it, but I've never really, you know, decided too much, uh, on what really happened. But when you steel see, when you vaporize. see, yeah, where no, like steel doesn't vaporize, 110 yeah. floors of steel yeah. and, and all the steel inside the building, just not really being anywhere that day. Like how, how, to, where did that go? It's pretty hard to ignore that, that evidence. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it, that, that whole thing, at least, points to the non-feasibility of of controlled standard controlled demolitions or even for that matter nanothermite or even mini nukes because in order to prep the buildings for that kind of destruction and i'm not saying that the exotic energy weaponry hypothesis doesn't have its own problems they all have their own problems but to prep a building like that for that kind of destruction by means of of standard demolitions or mm-hmm. even nanothermite would yeah. have required virtually the whole building to have been prepped. And we simply don't see enough opportunity or evidence that this was the case. There is evidence that there was some preparation going yeah. on yeah. in those buildings, but not of the extensive nature that that kind of, of result would have required. So I do think that you do have to entertain the the more exotic hypotheses that have been out there about their destruction. And and what and and again, like taking that into the big picture, right? We have UFOs flying around everywhere. People can deny that all they want, and right. and they're not necessarily ET or all of them aren't ET necessarily. But there's something right. flying big craft around and doing things that they you know they shouldn't be doing. So right. somebody's utilizing. Some pretty high-tech stuff, so it's not out of this world that that would be used right. in, in some sort of secret weaponry. So what what is the big problem you see with the directed energy then? You did mention that uh, there, it well, has its own problem. What would what would you figure that the, is? The biggest problem is, is the gymungous amount of energy that would be required to do that sort of thing on any standard conventional analysis. Mm-hmm. Uh, one guy that I looked at talked about cables, you know, at least a meter in diameter to provide the necessary electrical power to do something like that. Now, I think that there are possible ways of getting around that. But nonetheless, this remains a huge problem. And nobody, you know, myself included, I think has really uh, proposed, you know, proposed a, a model that that can do that i've proposed you know what i think might have been done but even then you know you're basing it on a lot of ifs and buts you know yeah 
Um, but you know, you, you mentioned the UFO thing, and and it's interesting because in one of my books called Saucers, Swastikas, and Psyops, I point out that toward the end of World War II, the the famous SS commando Otto Skorzeny who has his fingers in just about every post-war terrorist pie that you can think of, that this guy had seen some of this high-tech, you know, bizarre stuff that the Nazis were into toward the end of the war and proposed using it as part of an extended uh, psychological warfare operation Mm -hmm. behind enemy lines, in, in his words, meaning, you know, well, let's just use this stuff against the post-war allies and and do so in a, in a clever sort of psychological operation. So yeah, you know, there's so many indicators that that there's there's some sort of global network with access to to some pretty sophisticated technology that are not beholden to any particular nation state. And you know, this brings me back to to my idea that that you know, there's a group of of Nazis surviving the war that are involved in research projects that they're running by themselves, quite frankly, and and up to all sorts of, of stuff. And, and again, that implies a hidden system of finance. So, you know, all the dots connect if you're willing really to dig into them and, and entertain the possibilities. Otherwise, you're going to think that, well, this is just nuts. <laughs> you know? this, is, this is a bad Hollywood B-movie. Yeah, know? yeah. And, and I mean, really, things have shifted since that third third tier yeah, happened in nine eleven. I mean, the whole global system has has changed, right? I mean, military yes. industrial complex is at perpetual war. I mean, it, it really is. I mean, uh, yeah. but on the other side of that as well, the internet has also you know wakened up a lot of people, and there yes. are there is a social change happening as well. Like even in this this uh, this year's U.S. political debacle, I mean, it, it, it's just it's just opening up. All kinds of cans of worms about the media and and the, well, the super the super delegates and the funding and like everything sort of seems to be like cracking apart. Well, let's take the American political scene for want of a better expression uh, for a moment as an example of factional infighting. Uh, everybody is looking at Donald Trump and seeing a man. And please don't get me wrong here. I'm, no, no. People have to understand. I'm I'm bipartisan. I loathe both political parties in this country equally within a, <laughs> within a few decimal places of each other. Okay, I'm not a I'm not a dummy crook, and I'm not a republican. Okay, so so you look at the phenomenon of Donald Trump. And everybody thinks that this guy is just kind of a loose cannon shooting from the hip and so on and so forth. I don't see that at all. I see careful advice. Uh, I see someone who is definitely an anti-establishment candidate in a certain sense. And to me, the thing that highlighted the fact that he's an example of this factional infighting that I've been talking about gone public is the fact that during the debate – with all those candidates when they were still in in the running, you know, Rubio, the dubious Rubio and, and um, Jeb Bush and so on. He nailed Jeb Bush with 9-11 truth statements, yeah. statements <laughs> that came out of the 9-11 truth community. And that ended, quite literally, that ended Jeb's campaign, as far as I'm concerned. It was that attack that ended his prospects because it raised all of those questions, put them in the public agenda, and it was impossible for the American mainstream media to ignore. And 
when you factor this in with the fact that Trump is in what business? He's in the casino business. He's in the land and property development business on the East Coast of the United States. Well, do your own dot connecting here, folks. Who does this put him into possible contact with? Well, it puts him into possible contact with a group of people that have been part of the American deep state and criminal underground for a very, very long time that is nonetheless very patriotic. And they, you know, I'm talking the mafia here. Yeah. And they may be looking at all of these financial developments, what's happening in this country and saying enough is enough. We're not going to play ball with, you know, the Sullivan and Cromwell, Rockefeller, Rothschild. Right, right, right. So, you know, that again is is pure speculation on my part. But you you look at his campaign and the things that he's said and the people advising him and it begins to look more and more that that his candidacy is very deliberate and his statements are very calculated. Um, you know, there's there's all these evidences, I think, that, that show that there are deep fissures and cracks within the post-war Western alliance and financial system. Um, they're coming almost a dime a dozen almost every day now. Uh, we see this going on in France. We see it going on in Germany, Italy. So, you know, and not to mention Japan, which, you know, is rearming. Well, why is Japan rearming? Well, it's rearming because, in my opinion, they don't trust the United States anymore, nor should they. You know, and and they're bucking Washington right now, trying to uh, patch up their relationships with Russia because they simply do not want to be left out of of the realignment geopolitically going on in the Pacific. So all of this is related. You know, you, you can't. You can't simply rely on the public presentation of the news because they've only got 50% of the picture, and that's the only part of the picture they're ever going to talk about. You can't rely simply on alternative stuff. You you have to kind of put the two together to make what I think is is a sensible, comprehensive picture. Yeah, and look at what Trump has done. He's been, I guess he's been in the media for so long that yeah. really he, he pretty much used them against themselves. I mean, after all the spin and all the negative publicity, you know, he still had this air of at least some candidness and honesty that obviously resonated with a lot of people. I mean, I I don't know where it's going to go from here. And I don't know if countries like Japan are going to care who, who wins, because I think the damage might've been done at this point. Well, yeah, this is this is an interesting thing. Uh, President Putin has recently come out and and suggested that regardless of who wins, the problem for the rest of the world is they're still dealing with that very entrenched oligarchical plutocracy that that is basically running this country. To me, it's amazing that you know you have not only a Donald Trump but you have Senator Sanders, who's also very much a, an anti-establishment candidate making making life very difficult for for hillary clinton so you know you've got this anti-establishment mood in this country but i you know americans have to wake up and understand that electing a president is not going to change the power structure it's the power structure itself that is i think under assault from all of this and it's a long-term thing that you see happening in american politics right now this this is the first cycle of it but it's not not by any stretch of the imagination, the end of it. Where do you think we're going to end up then, and how long is it going to take? Well, I can't speak to Canada. I don't know enough about what's going on up there. I do have people sending me, you know, things from Canada, members 
of my website in your country. You have people sending you uh, Instagram pics of our president and stuff like that? <laughs> <laughs> well, not quite that bad, but <laughs> but um, but yeah, they say they say and see the same thing um, that you're dealing with an entrenched power system in the West that is itself under assault from somewhere. But in this country, I think you're looking at uh, major realignments. You've seen the Rockefeller family interests divesting their foundations of their petroleum interests, which to me is huge news. Uh, you even see the Saudis trying to do the same uh, over the long term. Yeah, a couple trillion, it, right, into new energy or something? Or? Energy. This to me is a signal that they know something's coming down the pike. I don't think they know exactly what it is. This is the other thing that wow. intrigues me. Um, because you see, for example, the Rockefellers investing in various fusion projects. And to me, the way this looks is they've been cut out of the loop and are trying to buy their way back in and to gain intelligence on, on the latest stuff that is at least out there in the public sphere. So there's something else going on. Uh, there's there's a group that that has shut out a lot of people. I think the Panama Papers is a part of this exercise. The way that looks to me is is that you know whoever's behind these leaks, and I'm not convinced it's the CIA, quite frankly. Um, whoever's behind this these leaks appears to be serving you know pink slips <laughs> to, to to various people in, in the global power structure. You know your services are no longer needed. You know? mm -hmm. So, so you yeah, don't I think, think it's CIA. No, I don't. I don't. Um, the it, it it's it's too obvious. This way. It, yeah, it's too obvious. In other words, it, it's so obvious that the fingers are pointing in that direction. That makes me think. Really, the fingers behind it are are completely different. And we have to remember what is what is the that that law firm Fonseca something rather. Uh, one of the members, of partners of that law firm is, is the son of a Nazi emigre. <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm looking at this and I'm saying, oh, there's a little clue. You know, this yeah. this may not necessarily be a CIA thing. Um, it could be it could be very much a, a part of this underground that I've been talking about since so many of their clients were involved in, you know, international mafia like activities. So, yeah, I, I think you're seeing a huge factional infight going on in the world behind the scenes. Everybody's scrambling. Well, let's look, well let, me, let me mention one more thing. Let's remember that after 9-11, Prime Minister Tony Blair of, of the United Kingdom came out and, and then quickly distanced himself from these remarks. And the remarks have been since forgotten. But he came out and said that al-Qaeda is part of a global network. In other words, there's something else behind Al-Qaeda. Mm. And he never specified what this global network was. So look what we have. We have the British prime minister saying, well, there's a global network, but he doesn't say what it is. We have a, a Russian economist, Tatiana Koryagina, saying, well, there's a global network. And they're going to carry out attacks on American soil, and they have assets in excess of $300 trillion dollars. All right. You've got Sergei Glazyev and his comments about the Ukraine and Nazis. You've got Sergei Lavrov. You've got Vladimir Putin hammering away at, at the global dogma that, you know, corporations cannot be allowed to run the world. Mm -hmm. The nation state is not obsolescent. 
So all the clues are pointing to the to what I think is is what's really the case. Everyone is talking about a global network. If you're paying attention to them, no one wants to tell you exactly what it is, and it looks to me as if everybody's a little concerned about what this network is up to, and some of them are trying to fight it. Um, and, and again, to me, I think given the vast amount of research I've done over the years, I think a huge part of that global network dates from World War II and the survival of, of the fascist elites. Uh, I really do. Um, they got in bed with Western intelligence. They got in bed with the international mafia. They got in bed with radical Islam. They got in bed with terrorist groups. And here we are today. Where does Russia fit in? Then Russia would be uh, anti-globalist, I guess. Oh, yes, absolutely. So the KGB, could, could the KGB be a, a suspect in the Panama Papers? Well, I don't... Well, it's uh, no longer first the KGB. All, it's, it's, yeah, it's the FSI. But um, Russian intelligence may have had a hand at some point in them. I don't know. Um, I suspect that it's another group entirely. But I do think that the Russians... If you look at the clues that they have been providing over the past several years, really beginning with 9-11 and up until the present, uh, the Russians have been very slowly leaking all of these things and pointing the finger at, at the existence of this group. So I think, the, I think Russian intelligence, if anything, is probably much better informed about it than anybody else. Uh, in the world, with maybe the exception of, of German and Israeli intelligence, possibly the French. But uh, I, I think they're trying to draw attention to the existence of, of this network is what I think they're trying to do. And increasingly, I think people are beginning to sit up and take notice. When, when again, going back to Donald Trump, four years ago, it would have been unthinkable and unheard of for any major American presidential candidate in either party to talk openly yeah. and use phrases that are coming directly from the 9-11 truth community. Yeah. And now it's de rigueur. And, and the other thing that's very interesting now is we have all of this talk about the, the uh, declassification of those 28 pages that were classified and given to the 9-11 truth, or pardon me, the 9-11 commission that the Bush administration insisted remain classified. And most people think, and I suspect that they're correct as far as it goes, that these papers un unveil the Saudi role in 9-11. But when Senator Graham, the, the then uh, Senate Intelligence Committee chairman, and his minority party counterpart, Senator Richard Shelby from Alabama, when they have been talking about these papers in recent interviews this year, what most people haven't picked up on, I mentioned this in, in the new 9-11 book I, I just came out with, what most people don't realize or pay attention to is that these senators said that they know what's in those documents, mm -hmm. and it details the role, please pay attention now, of foreign governments mm -hmm. in 9-11, plural, not just government, not just Saudi Arabia, 
there's somebody else involved and they don't want to talk about it. That's the big secret, I think, that they don't want to get out. So because it's Israel. <clears throat> it may be it may be Israel, but I think not. Um, Israel would have nothing to gain by a participation in the events of 9-11, because if it ever came out, the risk that it would create to Israel would be extreme and severe. I, I, I really have difficulty believing it's them. I do think that they're involved at some point in, in the level two operation, but I don't think that they're that deepest level. I think that deepest level, again, goes back to some sort of third extraterritorial international network that, you know, Mr. Mr. Blair indicated in his comments and that Tatiana Koryagina also indicated. So you're, you've got confirmation of the idea of that network coming from Russia and, and, and the United Kingdom. Uh, I, I think that if there's another set of powers involved at that level, you have to look very carefully at Germany because it's one of the nations, you know, giving warnings about upcoming 9-11. And in looking at Germany, you would be looking again at some aspect of this international fascist mafia. Um, I really do think there's aspects of this that people don't want to look at. Um, I, I have a couple of stunners in, in the 9-11 book. Uh, a friend of mine just was reading it just before we got on the air and came to a couple of things in that chapter and he just he instant messaged me on Facebook. He says, holy cow. <laughs> That's all he said. I said, well, I take it. I take it. You found the first Whopper doozy. <laughs> it's so great. It's so great to talk to you about this real big picture, high level stuff because I've, I, I haven't, you've been answering questions that I haven't even been able to formulate in my, in my <laughs> head before, because I've been trying to, you know, I tried to bring it up on the show before and I'm trying to reconcile what you're talking about, the, the, the third, but that's putting it into that uh, perspective that I can pick, I can, I can catch. It's like the third level, the global thing. And then, and how the national national sort of politics plays into that or against it or whatever. And then you have all these other factions. So sticking with that, that theme that I really want to hear your take on where the Clintons fit into this global thing, because Hillary's got something on her, agenda if she's going on to these shows there was a new york times article that just came out today about her talking about the you know the unidentified aerial phenomena instead of being called a ufo like so you know bill bill apparently tried to get this shit out when he was out there and, uh -huh. and she put a she cock blocked him on that one and then uh -huh. now but now she's all of a sudden talking about it so is this a distraction or do you think that she's trying to unravel some of this global stuff like could she be on on you know in another faction that's against that third level well let me tell you what my suspicion is um the clinton family as as most people are aware in this country is very tightly connected with the bushes uh, they were involved, you know, in the MENA, Arkansas, Iran, Contra stuff going on there. Um, Catherine Fitz has pointed out that the, the mortgage fraud that was being perpetrated at that time under uh, HUD, Department of Housing and Urban Development, most of the fraud was occurring in, guess where, Arkansas and Texas. Um, what I think Hillary is doing 
she's representing the Rockefeller interest. She's got this connection to the Rockefeller initiative on, on UFOs and yeah. so on and so forth. Yeah. What I what I go back to here is what I said earlier. The Rockefeller group, the, those interests have been shut out of access to the highest levels of Oh. intelligence and technology and i yes. think this is a i think this is her way of generating enough pressure to for that interest to try and kick some information loose and let them back into the loop and this is part of what i think is the panic that i see evident in the uh upper echelons and tiers of high finance at least in the public sector is there's a certain indication that these people are panicked about something and that this, in my mind, indicates in part that they've been cut out of the loop, that they're no longer getting the access that they used to have. And again, I go back to, to my three-tiered scenario of 9-11. I think those were divorce papers in a certain sense when, when they brought the towers down in the way that they were brought down. Somebody sort of noticed, we're here, look, look what we've got, look what we can do. Wow, yeah. Uh, we need you to pay up our marker. And then you had the bailout hearings and no oversight. Well, where's all this money gone? Everybody's been predicting that all of that money was going to create hyperinflation. Well, where is it? So in other words, there's an aspect, you know, I, I look at financial flows like electrical circuits. You put in a certain amount of current at one end and it's got to come out at the load end. And it's not coming out at the load end. Well, that means there's a part of the circuit that's hidden to us. There's, there's another load end where all of this is going. And I think, I think Hillary is, is an example of an establishment that's no longer at, in control of things. It's no longer in the position of access to the things it used to have access to. So do you think she's just like, I guess, like you said, she's trying to kick some info loose, but she's really not going to do anything when she gets in there. Uh, well, I guess well, it depends on the result. Well, the other problem with Hillary is, of course, she's got prison looming over her. Oh. You know, there's these, <laughs> anyway. I'm, very, I'm very serious. You know, you've got all of these FBI investigations, which you've, if you've been following what's been happening closely, the FBI is following its standard investigative procedure when they interview the target last and they've been interviewing people on her staff and even granting immunity in a couple of cases. Wow. So this is looking very bad for Hillary. Well, what happens if she gets elected? Everybody thinks that she will be a strong president. On the contrary, I think that this means she's easily blackmailable and manipulable and she will be a very weak president. And we do not need someone that weak dealing with things that are going on in the world that are going on now. Uh, I, I think in that sense, she would be, um, people are saying that she'd be much preferable to Trump or, or to Bernie Sanders. I, I take the opposite tack because she's got too many skeletons in her closet that would make her a very, very weak president. Can they not just assassinate him anymore like back in the JFK days? Well, the trouble here is, you know, sure, they can assassinate. I mean, the, I put nothing past these these uh, power elites. Cabal. Yeah, the cabal. Um, but the problem there is, is that their playbook is now so well known that anything like that is is going to make the general population even more cynical and even more uh, restless. 
So the last thing you need is to weaken your institutions at a moment when there is such global upheaval. Uh, you, you can't afford to do something like that. So I think, I think if anything, what they're going to try and do is manipulate whoever gets in there. And this is the problem they have with Sanders and Trump, yeah. uh, particularly the latter case, because Trump very obviously has his own connections. He has his own network. And they're obviously supplying him with information that, uh, and giving him advice on, on when to drop it out there. You know, I'm I'm extremely, I'm extremely suspicious of the swiftness by which Senator Cruz shut down his campaign. Yeah, yeah. After Trump made those those comments about his father being tied with Lee Harvey Oswald, now you know I don't know if that's true or not, but he makes he drops these comments out there, and then the next thing we know, Senator Cruz is shutting down his campaign. And after you know, he, Bush he, dropped, yeah. shut down his billion dollar campaign, right? Yeah, all of these things, all of these things are happening. So, in other words, messages are being sent and clearly understood. And this is what has everybody apoplectic. And, and you know, Trump is playing this game very well. He's sending his messages. The messages are being received. And, you know, out his competition goes. So I'm extremely suspicious about Senator Cruz in, in the light of what happened to Jeb Bush. Um, you know, again, I'm not saying that there's anything to that story. I simply don't know. But it does strike me as very suspicious that he drops out so quickly after that episode and the excuse is being given that his funding dried up, and now the same people that were funding him are now trying to fund Hillary Clinton. Oh, so, see, you know, they're, they're, as far as I'm concerned, again, they're 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 betting on a losing horse here because Hillary, you know, there's ongoing FBI investigations which she, as president, could shut down. But rest assured. Those investigations have already turned up something, and there's going to be a group of people using them to manipulate her. Uh, you know, and conceivably, you know, let's let's be blunt. She could pick a running mate that they would rather have in office, and they could use all of that information to impeach her. Out she goes, and in comes someone who essentially hasn't even run for the office of president, and they, whoever that might be, ends up in the Oval Office. So this could play out in any number of ways. Jeez, we should put a bet on that one, Darren. We should put some bets out there. <laughs> we just we just chatted with a guy who who's in the UK and he, he's he's like uh, online. They bet on all the U.S. politics in the UK. It's just quite funny. <laughs> I know. Oh, that's hilarious. So so I want to ask you then about the the trillion that Darren mentioned uh, that Rumsfeld talked about Two before nine eleven because because I've never really reconciled in my head what that I why he mentioned it and then why 9-11 happened not that 9-11 happened because of that but why why was the timing so weird with that was that a message from it was I think it was a I think it was a legitimate thing that Rumsfeld had uncovered and you know Rumsfeld was was given the task of going in and overhauling the Pentagon and and the accounting systems and so on and so forth. And there's actually a YouTube video of him in a congressional hearing after 9/11, where Congresswoman Cynthia McKinney, I don't know if you remember her, but she was trying to get to the bottom of all this missing money, trillions of you know the 2.3 trillion dollar story 
he came out with a day before 9-11. And then, of course, because of 9-11, it drops right off the radar screen. But after 9-11, there were other stories about even more missing trillions from the Pentagon. All right. So mm -hmm. Congresswoman McKinney is grilling Rumsfeld one day about, well, you were supposed to send me these figures. Do you have them with you now? No, I don't. Uh, so he turns to his aide and says, well, you know, do you have this? And, and she fumbles around for a while. And then Congressman uh, McKinney asks her if she can tell her who has the contracts for the database management of the Pentagon. And again, this woman is fumbling around. Well, I don't have that, um, 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 you know, and so on and so forth. So in other words, clearly there's some big financial skullduggery going on at the Pentagon. And it could be that this money is simply being siphoned away yeah. by that third group. Yeah. Literally stolen. Yeah. You know, if you have access to code names, then you have access to pretty much any database system management software in the system. And you can literally steal money. Through through unacknowledged special assets. Yeah, you could do it any number of ways. You know, literally money's being stolen. And I think that may be the big secret, part of the big secret they're trying to cover up. But, you know, Rumsfeld, I do think that his comment was genuine. I think he, I, I think that he it's a was... a coincidence genuine. that it was the day before? Well, let me tell you, 9-11, 9-11 has the clear signals of a financial crime. And here's why. The Office of Naval Investigations was investigating high financial crimes that were committed during the era of the collapse of the Soviet Union to the tune of missing hundreds of billions of dollars. And it was conducting this investigation along with a couple of brokerage firms that were incidentally located in the Twin Towers. Wasn't one of them using some sort of, they were the only company in the world using some sort of new transactional software as well? Uh, you were going to get to that. <laughs> and it's very interesting that Flight 77 or whatever crashes into the Pentagon, crashes into the Office of Naval Investigations, and where the planes strike the Twin Towers was precisely where some of these brokerage houses that were cooperating in that investigation were located. And then on the day of 9-11, the other important thing that people miss, a researcher by the name of E.P. Heidner came up with this, on the day of 9-11, the, the Securities and Exchange Commission suspended its normal rules for securities clearing. Under normal rules, securities cannot be substituted for other securities that are about to clear. But when the rules are suspended, you can do that substitution. And this is what happened. So in oh. other words, there were, yeah, <laughs> there were hundreds of billions of dollars worth of securities that were set to clear that probably couldn't have cleared. So they, you know, they shut down the normal regulations, other securities were substituted and so on and so forth. Now you mentioned software. <laughs> so we're back to the Germans again. Um, I find it highly suspicious that a German company was hired after 9-11 to recover all the data on the surviving computers from the World Trade Center. I find that suspicious. The second thing I find suspicious is on the day of 9-11 itself, employees of Deutsche Bank stated that their computers just minutes before the first collapse, the, the South Tower collapse, 
before this occurred, their computers were taken over by something external to the system for about seven seconds. And all sorts of stuff was downloaded and trades were executed. Wow. I haven't heard that. No one, yeah, no one has followed up on this. What was the data that was downloaded? Yeah. What, what were these trades? No one has followed up on this, but it is out there. It's in the story. So there's high financial crimes going on on 9-11 that at least part of the operation looks like it was designed to cover up. And that would have only have come from level two with access to some of these things. And the invasion of the computers might have come from level three because, again, level three apparently had possession of all these codes, top secret codes from various uh, departments of the federal government. And insider trading on the airlines. Oh, yeah. Now, the insider trading on the airlines, here's what's peculiar about that. When you really dig into it, you'll find that the trades were not as significant in terms of their dollar amounts as one might have thought. But interestingly enough, and again, this is this is an aspect of it that, that is seldom mentioned, in terms of federal securities buying, the United States government itself was heavily involved in some of that insider trading on American sovereign securities and in the put options. So in other words, that's an indicator, again, that level two had inside knowledge and was masterminding this, this whole operation. It's when we turn to level three the penetrated operation, that we have to start raising questions because another heavy trader on the airline put operate, uh, options was, guess who? Germans. Was Luft, yeah, Lufthansa Airlines. <laughs> yeah, you know, so <laughs> yeah, we've got Twin Towers over there in Frankfurt watching the Twin Towers over here in New York City. So, yeah, you know, there's so much about the whole thing that, that are indicative, to my mind, of, of a penetrated operation that something else is going on here. And uh, the financial indicators seem to indicate, yeah, the Germans know something about this uh, third level. I think the Saudis certainly do, although I don't think they're involved at that third level. Um, but there's a lot of there's a lot of indicators that that there is a third level that has penetrated the whole thing and, and turned it inside out. And it's possibly some sort of fourth, right? Yeah, I, that's exactly what I think it is. Yeah. Um, let me give you let me give you just one clue, and this isn't even the most sensational one in the book. <laughs> Everybody knows about Mohammed Atta, but what they don't know is that Mohammed Atta, who was from Cairo, Egypt, was recruited and made his way to Germany, where he stayed for several years in an apartment in Hamburg, as most people know. But he was recruited by two Germans that are unknown. When he was at the flight school in Florida, most of his contacts weren't Arabs at all, and nor was his behavior, particularly that of a, you know, really devout Muslim. You know, he's going around uh, to titty bars and things and drinking and having drug parties and so on and so forth. This isn't behavior of, of a fundamentalist Muslim by any stretch of the imagination. But most of his contacts while he's in that flight school in Florida are, guess what? They're Dutch, they're Germans, they're Swiss Germans, he speaks German. He even speaks Hebrew. And he's he's getting money 
from these people. Now, here's the real clincher. When Mohammed Atta was in Germany, he was sponsored there by a society called the Karl Duisburg Gesellschaft. And when I found that, my suspicion meter went right into the red zone. Because if you know who Carl Duisburg is, you'll know I that he, was, um, he is was during World War One and shortly after World War One, he was the president of Bayer, the big German chemicals company, like aspirin, oh, oh, Bayer, yeah. like Bayer aspirin, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And in addition to this, he's one of the founding members of guess what, I G Farben. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck. Yeah, that's when I read it, that was pretty much my reaction, too. (laughs) And in addition to this, the Carl Duisburg Society, that's what the German name is, Carl Carl Duisburg Gesellschaft, is heavily sponsored by people like James Baker, David Rockefeller, Henry Kissinger. So in other words, this isn't an innocent connection here, folks. This is a society named after one of the founders of IG Farben. IG Farben, you might as well say Nazi military industrial complex because that's what and big pharma are. too. I mean. And big pharma, you know, <clears throat> on top of that. So, you know, they're building tanks and explosives and drugs and <laughs> you know, the whole nine yards. Um, so yeah, you've got this Mohammed Atta connection to to <laughs> IG Farben. And I'm telling you, folks. That's that's merely a coincidental thing. In and of itself, that doesn't point to my Nazi international. But I can guarantee you there's another whopper doozy in the book that almost all but cinches the case, that you're looking at a very, very deep operation and a very deep global network, just like, just like Blair and, and Coriogan have said, with assets in the trillions of dollars and that is capable of pulling off a stunt like that is capable of penetrating level two because at some point historically they're connected with it and that has access to some very sophisticated technology because they've been researching it. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's, that's my argument. That's a good one. I, I like it. It puts it into perspective for me. So, so with, with your work and, a lot of the other people that are doing work like yours, very good work. Uh, I mentioned, you know, the Corbett report earlier, like not, you know, not even getting into extreme conspiracies, but staying with the type of stuff we're talking about. Um, do you think there's, um, or there is an awakening going on? I mean, more people, like it's just like you talked about, Trump mentioned, you know, 9-11 rhetoric and just this year, you know, if, if somebody would have said that 10 years ago, there's no way. Yeah. So, so you've you've probably seen this sort of um, you know increased awareness happening. What's your thought about it? Is it going to come to a tipping point, or is it going to is it going to are they going to shut us down before that? As far as like being able to share all this stuff on the internet. Well, you know, let's assume they do try and shut down the internet. The only thing that's going to do is it's going to drive people back to to other methods of disseminating information, just like it did in the old Soviet Union. You know, you had people in the Soviet Union circulating manuscripts, typewritten manuscripts, you know, that were called Samizdat, underground all the time. Mm. So, you know, they're not going to be able to shut it down. They're, the only thing they're going to be able to do is slow it down. And I don't think that will happen because the other thing, like it or not, the other thing that Trump did when he, when he 
basically landed on Jeb Bush like a ton of bricks with with his 9-11 comments. Um, what he did is he put that back into the mainstream, and it cannot be ignored now. Um, they will try and dance around it. They will try and ignore it. They will try and paint him as some sort of, of kook. But, but the real thing that this indicates as far as Trump's campaign goes is that somebody in that campaign, and I have my suspicions as to who it is, is maybe making some sort of survey of all of the conspiracy theories out there and passing it along to him. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and he's, he's, he's dropping these things into the middle of these political debates and drawing atten people's attention to them. And that's the last thing you want. You know, they can't shut this guy down. I mean, if they if they take him out now, assassinate him, that's only going to raise people's suspicions, and you, you can't do that. So in other words, he's playing this very, very well. He's playing it, you know, he's playing a game of chess, and, and the other guys are playing checkers. And, you know, there's, there's, there's a great deal of sophistication behind the timing of his remarks, and, and you see what happens as a result of his remarks. So someone is behind him, giving him intelligence, and he's going out there and sending the messages to the power elite that, you know, enough is enough. So who knows what's going to happen? I don't think in the long term that any of this is going to go away. Uh, the only tactic that I can see is open now is, is the tactic of distraction. Create a huge enough distraction that, that the issue falls off the table. And even then... I think there's enough of us out there now yeah. that, you know, it, it's like the JFK assassination. We've reached the tipping point with respect to the post 9-11 world, just like we did with the Warren Commission in this country right around the time that Ronald Reagan was elected president. Um, that was the tipping point in JFK assassination research, because after that point, most Americans <clears throat> realized that, you know, the Warren Commission report was was just a plain fantasy. And I think we're fast approaching that stage with, with 9-11. But nothing ever happened with JFK. So does that mean nothing will ever happen with 9-11? What do you mean nothing happened? Well, it's JFK? like, I guess, I guess, you know, if you, if you it's ask people... It's still a people, kooky conspiracy theory. Yeah, if, you, if you ask people, I guess, you know, maybe more people will believe that something happened there than not, but no one... In the end, nobody ever is going to know or, or no one's ever going to be reprimanded for it. Well, I th uh, that may be the case as far as reprimand. But I think the significant thing that's happening now is that if you look at certain places in the alternative community, there are now people, you know, well-researched well people like, like your countryman Peter Dale Scott that have been drawing attention to the fact that the patterns in evidence of the JFK assassination are the same patterns that we see in 9-11. Mm. In mm. So in other words, what he's arguing is that 9-11 and JFK are both operations of the deep state, or what I'm calling level two. And more and more people are waking up to this, that, that this cadre of, of people in the banking community, in the military-industrial intelligence complex in the United States, in, in other Western countries, 
are involved in these events and they're questioning the legitimacy of their power and and questioning the the institutions that have enabled it so i think that's a very good thing i mean look at bernie sanders campaign for a moment here in this country he's doing essentially the same thing that donald trump is doing but in a different way uh, he's talking about taxing wall street transactions and so on and so forth and using that money to to fund infrastructure improvement and so on and so forth so he's he's essentially taking aim at the very same set of people that Trump is taking aim at in a very different way. So something is up. You know, there's there's a huge anti-establishment move. And what I think it re- really represents, as I've indicated before, is certain factions of the power elite have had it with other factions of the power elite. Yeah. yeah. And are, are going after them. Is that and where this... Is, do you think these migrations in Europe have anything to do with it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, because look what you have in Europe, um, particularly in Germany. You have now the creation of a political backlash against it mm-hmm. that could easily turn fascist if it wanted to. So far, if you really have been paying attention to the rhetoric of their major leaders of these movements they have managed to avoid that so what is what is this crisis all about i suspect that this is the the classical dialectical method of creating a cultural perception of european civilization in other words what the eu lacks is an identity of europeans Uh, As Europeans, they lack a a cultural identity. So what do you do? You import a backward, odious, barbaric, medieval, genocidal political philosophy disguised as a religion to create the perception that, hey, this is in complete opposition to anything that we as Europeans, be we French, German, Italian, Dutch, Spanish, that we as Europeans hold as the central core values of this civilization that literally has taken centuries to evolve. I think that's part of the game, is to create that European cultural identity. And they're using Islam again as the fall guy. Now, as I said, I think there's a danger of a fascist backlash that could easily come out of this. And if that's the case, if that's what's driving it, then yeah, you have to look again at, at the possibility of of a deeper player perhaps driving some of this. Do you think that's level two then, right now? No, 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 no. Level two. Let's be very clear. What I mean by level two in the nine eleven context is a network or group solely within the American. Oh, okay. That's just that's just for that uh, right, reference. Right. Yeah. Level three is my global international fascist drug running. Cabal. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I see what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. The level two doesn't apply in that situation, really. Okay. Hmm. And I'm not, please understand, I'm not, by level three, I'm also not talking about the central bankers, the Zionists, and so on. Those are all factions, I think, within this global network. Yeah. And there's probably some, you know, overlap and, and you know, of course, some influence. There's not one overarching group. 
when I say fascist international or Nazi international, what I'm trying to get through to people is, number one, there is a solid core of a fascist elite that traces its roots back to World War II. But number two, it certainly has other components within it. Yeah. Bankers, the, the, you know, the Rockefellers, the Rothschilds, the Warburgs, well, the, DuPont, I, the major corporations. The yeah, some, some private corporations, the high right. technology corporations right. and stuff like right. that, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so uh, I don't know if we can we can switch gears here, but Darren's Darren's got two young kids, and he's been uh, talking about Common Core a little bit. And I know that all uh, all uh, your uh, topics all your topics like do overlap and and they they tie together. But if we could switch gears to to your book that just came out about uh, Rotten to the Common Core, and we could touch on that a little bit, maybe just uh, for Darren specifically and his kids, and 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 it'll it'll still sort of tie into some of the stuff we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Do you have any questions, Darren, about that? Like, I don't know. You were almost the, buying into the math part, weren't you? Or sometimes, like, sometimes I can almost get on board with the math. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, but yeah, I, I looked at the math of some of the math things of Common Core, and I thought, well, okay, you know, they're giving the the basic groundwork for linear algebra and things later on. But I looked at some of this, and I thought, you know, my word, are they really are they really going this route? To have kids diagram and all of this stuff and lay out their matrices and so on and so forth. How are you going to lay out a matrix of 241,189 times 5,450? You know, solving a math problem by laying out matrices, and I'm talking just about one little thing I saw that way, to me seems to be hopelessly impractical unless they're teaching other basics along with it. Yeah, Um, yeah. But to me, the the problem with Common Core is not the curriculum part of it. It's the standardized test part of it. Because what Common Core really is, is it's a set of computer-adaptive, individualized, standardized tests that they want to put into place from elementary school all the way up through high school, and presumably, I I would imagine, eventually on into college. So in other words, what it really is, is it's a system that's being designed, once again, to put the blame on the teachers and to reduce teachers to the status of test proctors when the actual instruction is being done by computers, computer software, computerized tests, and so on. And the problem here is, as I, as my co-author and I try and point out in the book, is if you look at these standardized tests, what they really do is they punish the finer mind. And I have several examples in the book of former standardized test questions, which were actually appeared on the SAT in this country, that were questions that were simply wrong. <laughs> The test makers themselves were incompetent. The test makers themselves had been dumbed down. One of the test questions was, you know, a a, a cultural question. The emperor is the name of, and it gave you three three choices, a concerto, a quartet, and um, I forget what the third option was. Well, you know, I, I love classical music, and I looked at that, and I thought, you've got to be joking. Most people would think, if they know anything about it, would think, okay, well, the Emperor Piano Concerto of Beethoven. 
but they wouldn't know the Emperor String Quartet of Haydn. So which answer do you select if you know this on a test? And I remember as, as a, a boy taking these tests in junior high and high school, I had several questions like that where I knew that there were several answers that were correct and I was supposed to pick one. So I was asked to, to read the minds of some distant anonymous committee of so-called experts who made up the exam. So my first problem is that these tests punish the finer mind. And the second problem with these tests is you are not being asked in any of these tests to generate an answer. You are simply being asked to select an answer. Mm. And they do not therefore permit you to argue why you are selecting an answer. So they give you no indication of your reasoning abilities, <laughs> of your ability to articulate your reasoning by writing out your argument. So the whole thing, as far as I'm concerned, and, and we take a great deal of time to go back and examine the, the philosophical roots for these standardized tests and where they're coming from and who's behind them and why, the whole, the whole effort has been one to dumb down people and the tests themselves are first of all the means to do it and then they do something else. They're designed to slot you into your, let's say, your most optimal life career choices, all right? So in other words, these tests are part wow. of a social engineering agenda. Wow. That is with you wow. from the day you enter a public school system and all of your life. They are being designed to organize essentially a caste system. And therefore, they're not meant to test your reasoning abilities. They're simply designed to slot you. To select There's, your personality type. To select, yeah, to select your personality. And, and your aptitude, obviously, if you have aptitude towards one You're, thing or another. Right. Yeah. You know, and the, this this is part and parcel, as far as I'm concerned, of, of the surveillance state, because this is another way of surveilling you. So it has little to do with education. It has little to do with training the mind. You know, when I was, when I was at Oxford, undergraduates there had no tests for their three years of, of study. Then they sat comprehensive exams for a week. And those exams were essay exams that were evaluated by scholars in their chosen field. All right. That to me is, is a legitimate assessment. Because first of all, you're being asked to generate your own answers and then justify and argue them and articulate them. A standardized test cannot and will not do this. The only thing it's designed to do is to slot you. And it cannot, it cannot measure or evaluate the subtleties of actual one-on-one -on -one human interaction. I'm an old curmudgeon in this respect. A computer cannot teach you. Only a human being can teach you. Because mm -hmm. only a human being can argue with you and can evaluate the subtleties of an argument and pose responses or further questions and so on and so forth. To turn this over 
to an anonymous committee of so-called experts who demonstrably demonstrated their incompetence in the previous decades where these tests have taken hold, and then ask someone to read the minds of that anonymous committee and guess what answer they want when the test questions themselves are ambiguous, this is this is an affront. This isn't education at all. Do you think it's intentional that it's that it's dumbing absolutely. people down? Like, is this absolutely. it is part of the the bigger yes. agenda? Yes, absolutely, hmm. absolutely. Wasn't there Bill Gates? The, the, yeah. I think it's the Stop and think. Mail and turned, Yeah, we, yeah. We we want a guy who can barely design a decent operating system on a computer managing education and a guy furthermore who made his sell out to the NSA we want this in education no no i propose that if they they want to have everybody on these tests that these so-called experts and the people driving these tests take the tests themselves and publish the results in it, the papers is is there pop- these people pass their own tests <laughs> Is there propaganda questions in there as well? I thought that oh, there was. Absolutely. I thought that there was some like corporate type uh, and, and sort of propaganda type questions in there. Absolutely. I mean, you you dig into this. I, I recall blogging about. It's been a few weeks ago, blogging about one of these questions about President Kennedy of all people and his trade policy, and the answers that you were allowed to select from clearly had a political agenda. Clearly. Hmm. So, you know, no way, no way am I going to turn this whole selection over to corporations that have made an obvious botch. I mean, we've had standardized tests in this country, at least since the end of World War II. Have we improved? Has the American population grown more courteous, more intellectual, more capable of critical thought? Well, look at America today and you have your answer. And the answer is no. Now, here's the final thing that people need to be aware of. At an early point, at an early juncture in all of the development of of this standardized testing mania, the Educational Testing Service in Princeton, New Jersey, which runs the American SAT tests, all right, was contacted by guess who? The CIA. What were they contacted in conjunction with? MKUltra. What were they contacted to do? Well, use the tests to see if they could be adapted for mind influence, social engineering purposes. Bingo. There you have it. So when, no. When was my, that? That was in the 50s. I Jeez. think circa 19, 1955, 56. I didn't know about that piece of it. Uh, yeah, we, we put that in the book. Just, yeah. you know, after everything else, just to make people really stop and sit up and take notice of what all of this is about. So, Dar- uh, so Darren, how is this? In the, is this in Canada now? Then for your kids, like, are your kids having to take this? Some of this, or is it know, our own version of yet. it? Or my kids are too young yet. Because I mean, this- I just seen it in. Uh, they were like trying to sell books. They're trying to sell you the books that'll like prepare you for your kids. And it went right exactly. up. To, it went right up to high school. Isn't that convenient? You <laughs> let's look at let's look at the fact that some of these companies are not only selling their tests but selling the textbook. All right. Now I'm an old I'm an old curmudgeon. To me, a textbook is a book of texts. In other words, it's a book of primary source readings. 
Back when I taught medieval philosophy, I had a big, thick 1,000-page textbook that was called Philosophy in the Middle Ages. And all it was was a connection, a, a collection of readings from Aquinas, from Peter Abelard. In other words, the actual people that were writing the philosophy. Mm -hmm. That, to me, is a textbook. A textbook is not a secondary scholar telling you what Aquinas or Plato or Aristotle or Einstein or Darwin said. Right. A textbook is a book of texts, okay? When you put yourself at the mercy of these corporations peddling their textbooks, what are you putting yourself at the mercy of? You're putting Pretty yourself... find answers, right? Yeah, you're, you're, you're putting people at the mercy of pre-digested, regurgitated answers with a certain slant on what they want you to think about all of this. You're not dealing with the primary sources. And these textbooks, in turn, are designed to prepare you for what? Taking their tests. So, no, I, this is not education. This is a cartel. It's a monopoly. It's an attempt to control knowledge. And let's go further. What they are now moving to is the idea of doing all of this off of e-books. Well, folks, if you, want, if you want the Soviet encyclopedia on steroids, if you want your pictures of Joseph Stalin standing next to Yezhov and Yagoda in one year, and then the next year that picture has been purged of those two gentlemen because they in turn have been purged, this is what the e-book will allow them to do. They will be able to change information, make people say what they have not said, delete the inconvenient fact, make up stuff and put it in there that have not been said. The only, I, I tell every reader of my books, even though my books are on Kindle and other ebook applications, the only canonical text of my works is the printed, actual, physical, hard copy. Because I format my books to look a certain way, to read a certain way, which is bungled and botched in these ebook formats. The only canonical text is the printed text, the hard copy. See, and, Gavin, you want to vote by, by app. No, I don't. I never said that. I just asked the question of when the apps were going to be implemented for people to vote. That's all. I mean, that's probably well, coming. I mean, let's let's stop and consider that voting in this country, at least, is now all computerized. And uh, what Mitt Romney's machines, isn't it? Mitt Romney's machines. Look, <laughs> go, go, go all the way back to the near constitutional meltdown we had in 2000 in Florida between uh, Vice President Gore and Governor Bush. Yeah. You know, over computerized voting. Over and over again, there have been allegations of computerized fraud. And again, it's, it's because you can go into these machines and literally change the results according to your preset determination. So do I want to turn over education to a testing cartel that's producing its own textbooks, <laughs> oftentimes on ebooks, which you can change at a moment's notice? No, I do not. I cannot think back to my educational experience and remember any moment of insight or of intellectual awakening <coughs> that was brought about by a standardized test. I can go back and remember the teachers that influenced me yeah. and name them yeah. because of what they did in the classroom. And it was oftentimes totally unrelated to any test that they had to prepare us for. So I'm, I, if you get the idea that I'm 150% against all of this nonsense, you'd be correct. 
<laughs> what do you think, Darren? Are you ready for your kids to take this? What, what are you going to do? Homeschool? You got to homeschool. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, well, it's let me know. tell you, homeschooling in the statistics in this country, by and large, indicate that homeschooling, uh, homeschooled kids do much better, even on the standardized tests, <coughs> than, than people who've been subjected to, to the public education regimen. And more importantly, there are many private schools in this country, particularly in Silicon Valley, where the, the elite themselves have forbidden computers, iPads, and so on in the classroom. And the reason? They want their kids to learn. <laughs> and wow. that kind yeah, of says Yeah, pretty much. I think we're going to start with the, her kindergarten is like, well, is like uh, nature-based. Well, this is the other thing. What, what all of this is also doing is it's teaching uh, our students that all information is on the internet. And I'm sorry, you know, most of the books I write, mo most of the information in my books isn't on the internet. It's in good old fashioned libraries and card catalogs. So if you, you know, technology is fine and it's great to know how to use it and, and use it to search for things, but you also got to know how to go into an old fashioned library and look up things. What's a card catalog? <laughs> yeah, what's a, what's a card catalog? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Because so, not everything is digitized. I mean, this is the bottom line. I, I went in there once looking for a book. Oh, man, recently it was painful. I'm <laughs> so used to just Googling things now. And Yeah, but, you know, again, do you want to place your, 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 your intellectual independence in the hands of a corporation and its search engine? Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. That's scary. Sometimes I do. <laughs> well, I do too. I, you know, I, I'm not saying I don't use Google or Yahoo or Bing or any of these other search engines. Yeah, yeah. But my real problem is, again, uh, it's a certain kind of information that's made available to me that way. But can I go in on the internet and read some of the texts that I read or use in my research? Answer, no. Because they're in books, yeah, not yeah. anywhere else. Yeah. And, you know, I've got to know how to be able to do that. And, and unfortunately, you can, you can tout the, the joys and virtues of the Internet all you want. But unfortunately, the Venetian State Archives, the Vatican Archives, the Bundes Archive, a lot of that stuff is not on the Internet yet. You still have to have the physical document and know how to find it. Yeah. So uh, we, we've got to get away from this idea of technology as the cure-all. And I'm adamant on this one. Teachers in the classroom, teachers in the classroom who are competent in their subject area are absolutely the, the, the necessity for any real education. This cannot all be done with computers yeah. or with corporately provided textbooks. I'm sorry. It just cannot be done. Um, and it's really an assault on, on teachers themselves is, is what we're looking at. And that, that assault incidentally has been deliberate and by design ever since it was a gleam in Horace Mann's eye in this country back in the middle of the 19th century. And it's gotten worse and worse and worse. Throwing more money at it is not going to be the solution. And, you know, I'll go even further. I think we need to get rid of the whole idea of teacher certification altogether. If you have a degree in an academic subject, you should be permitted to teach in, in a public school 
without any of this educational Mickey Mouse class that you have to take to get your certification. Because what most of that stuff does is it diverts you from the content of the discipline you're supposed to teach. Wow. Well, well said. said. Yeah. Hmm. So <laughs> before let me, we... Let me pose a question to you. Sure. Let me pose a question to you. If you're a teacher listening to this show in Canada, the United States, Australia, I don't care where, when was the last time your school district paid for your continuing education to go attend a conference where the latest papers in your subject discipline, be it literature, be it art, music, physics, biology, when was the last time your school district paid you to take and fulfill your continuing education requirements by attending a conference relating to the content of your discipline? And probably the answer will be never. When was the last time your school district, however, paid you to go to a conference where you learned the latest pedagogical method, the latest child psychology theory, the latest educational methodology? Probably that's been most of your paid continuing education. And that's the problem right there. Mm. That says it all. Mm. Well, so before before we uh, before we wrap up, I wanted to know what you think about um, speaking of modern modern information and stuff like that. I mean, you when you get into the more current event politics and and this type of thing, how do you sift through the media? How do you tease away the bias? And how do you how do you <laughs> I don't know how to even ask it, but how do you get through all that crap and get to the good stuff? And do you have well, any? Do you have any I have a, con- I have a confession. Yeah. I have a confession. Um, I do not have my. I, I have cable simply because I have to have it to have my internet access. But I do not have my TV hooked up. I do not watch any American mainstream media at all. Most of what I get in terms of news is either being sent to me by members and readers of my website in the form of articles that they get, you know, online watching the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or what have you. And basically what I do is I sit back and look at what's in the public domain and then try and analyze it from the standpoint of what my research has indicated may have been going on behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I don't expose myself to the mainstream media anymore at all because it is so palpably uh, prostituted and incestuous. Um, it, is, it is no longer the fourth estate, you know, as it used to be known. Uh, we have no tradition anymore within the mainstream media of real investigative reporting, at least in this country. I, I can't speak to Canada, but um, in this country, it's, it's just a farce. So and, I don't pay any attention to it. Nice. And you don't get to see those ads either that uh, sell, sell you, sell you uh, drugs for your constipation due to too much opioid use. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, this is the other thing. Every drug commercial on has all of these caveats and codicils, you know, you may die of a stroke or a heart attack or terminal flatulence, you know, who knows what, but they have all of this nonsense, you know, why would anyone want to prescribe a drug or take a drug like this? It's, yeah. it's nuts. Yeah, it's you know? crazy. And, and why should I pay for cable when I'm, when I'm forced to sit through a bunch of commercials? You know, I've, I've got a, a nice DVD collection, so if I want to watch some television, I'll put in a movie or something, but... <laughs> yeah. um, 
I, I, you know, if I had my choice, if, if my cable company would allow me, I would say, yeah, hook up my phone, hook up my internet. Don't bother with the TV. I'm not paying for that. I only have internet. <laughs> yeah. Actually, well, that's have a I have a cell phone too, but I have an internet and I have uh, Netflix, but I have no cable. Well, see, you're allowed to up there. Down here, it's very, very difficult. You know, the, the I have to have landlines, unfortunately, to, due to my interviewing uh, on radio so much. And a lot of places still want you to have a landline. So, you know, I have no choice. I've got to take the cable as part of the package. But if I had packages available with no television, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Because as far as I'm concerned, I do not want to feed these awful, horrid people. Um, just, just... What what the Western and particularly American mainstream media does with Russia is just appalling. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. it's it's <laughs> it's just so totally so totally not true. Um, I, I I don't have time for it. Um, you know, I I do my reading from newspapers and magazine articles and internet stories and so on that people that people send me. Right. So so we don't want to keep you too long, Joseph. Uh, do you have anything? Do you else do you want to mention before we uh, start wrapping up uh, no i'm i'm cool you know I, i'm here for however long you want me here um you know we're in such a we're we're in a, one of those transitional phases of history that, that happens about once every 500 years but i think this one qualitatively is unlike anything in previous human experience or history and that's partly i think why people are so on edge and anxious because they haven't they haven't perceived the real nature of what we're doing and what we're going through. I think we're transitioning to something very different, uh, and our power elites are just determined as all get out to hang on to an old paradigm yeah. that ultimately is just you know it's, it's going to be as obsolete as the dodo bird and them with it. Um, How long is that going to take? Do you think? Like, is this something we're going to see in our lifetime, or is this something? No. Um. I think it's going to take at least a hundred years. I think uh, I think we're I think we're looking at another era like the Thirty Years' War, because I you know I think we're looking also at at the breakdown of of the Westphalian system of international order. Uh, I think we're looking at prolonged period of clash of civilizations. Uh, we've got a whole segment of the world that is is beholden to just a hideous, backward, odious pseudo-religious regime, you know what I'm talking about, Yeah, uh, that is, is, I think, probably quite literally going to have to be drugged into the 21st century, kicking and screaming all the way. Um, I think we're looking at that. We're seeing huge geopolitical realignment. We're seeing technologies beginning to be leaked into the public that are going to dramatically change the way we view manufacture, the way we view infrastructure. Uh, the financial system is, you know, with with every change of technology like this, particularly one involving energy, the financial system has to change. And this is the other thing I think we're seeing. And the financial elite has not a clue <laughs> at the, how, to, how to transition this uh, smoothly. Um, I think they're trying as hard as they can to do so smoothly. And in a certain respect, they've been moderately successful, but in others, not so. But uh, I think it's going to take at least a century, if not more. But our grandkids are going to be living in a very different world. The essential thing, I think we have to, to drive into people's heads 
is that our culture and civilization are at stake. Our, our basic freedoms are at stake. And we have to hand those things down to our children. Mm-hmm. We have to hand down the, the fundamental idea of individual human sovereignty and rights uh, and equality of law. We've got a dangerous double standard that's developed in the West now uh, of, of law. Uh, the, this, big, the big this, crimes go unpunished and the small the ones go unpunished. Exactly. Right, exactly. I mean, there's people in jail for doing far less in this country, violations of national security regulations and laws, far less than Hillary Clinton. Um, this, this is the double standard, and that has to end. You cannot have a functioning civilization or society. You cannot have transparency when the power elite are subject to a completely different set of laws. Yeah. Because everything breaks down. Well, it's almost financially based too. You know what I mean? Like, yes, like a good one is a DUI, right? And that's like a right. low level one. It's like basically, and I've got guys guys that that I work with that it's basically if one guy gets a DUI compared to the other guy, one guy's going to get off of it, and the other guy's not, just because of how well they manage their money. Right. Exactly. One guy's got ten thousand dollars in the bank. Basically, that's the price yep. it takes to get off to not lose your shit for a DUI. Yeah. Yeah. The, we, we've got, we're in a culture, we're in a culture war. We're in a civilization war. And in those circumstances, mere politics is never the solution because the real transition is of a cultural and civilizational nature. So we have to identify the core virtues of our civilization and hand those things down and make sure they get handed down. Uh, the other thing we need to do is restore a hierarchy of values to our to our culture. This has all but been eclipsed in the last fifty years. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and by that, what I mean is, you can't call Jackson Pollock and and Rembrandt genius painters in the same breath. They're of a of a wholly different order. And frankly, as far as I'm concerned, Jackson Pollock is just blotches and blobs on a canvas. It's not. It's not creative genius. Mm. Uh, we have to. We have to restore a sense of the high tradition and values of our culture. Uh, you know, it's not that I sit around listening to Bach all the time. I sit around listening to the Beatles too, but I won't ever put them in the same breath or equate them as being on the same level of creativity. Never, ever, ever. I I do agree with you about the that it's not cyclical. That we are in a in a in a transformation age. You know, yeah. spiritually, technologically, and, and and also on the verge of a. I guess what you're saying is a slow collapse. Like it's not going to happen fast, but it's going to be, right? Uh, you know, war and, and and civil unrest maybe for a while, and all this stuff's going to happen before it. Uh, before it, it settles, break. yeah, yeah. Well, Catherine Fitz has an interesting observation, at least about the financial angle of this. Everybody asks her. You know, she's she's not one of the the sky is falling and the collapse is coming any minute now sorts of people. She calls it a slow burn in terms of the financial system. And she's right because uh, they are trying to transition to a new type of financial system. And all sorts of proposals are out there, including cashless society, which I think would be a huge mistake. Uh, That would be a huge blow against individual freedom. Yeah. Uh, We, we, we don't want that. But uh, even if they did that, I think, what you'd see emerge is a bunch of local currencies because people simply are not going to settle without a physical medium of exchange of some sort. 
So, yeah, there's there's all sorts of stuff that's going to happen in the next century. You know, I wish I were long lived to be around and watch it all happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I, I do think people need to take the view for themselves and for their children that this is a long term process and and strategize accordingly. And what can what can some people do? What do you recommend people do to number one to, read, to help? read read and critique the the standard narratives, particularly with respect to our various constitutional systems. Mm. Uh, you, you've got your charter up there in Canada, Pete, that you know is being shredded right and left, from what my Canadian friends tell me. So be familiar with the core founding documents of your, of your particular political order and of the critiques of it. You know, I keep telling people in this country to to read the anti-federalist papers in addition to the federalist papers, uh, because there there were some powerful critiques of the current U.S. constitutional system. That were given by the anti-federalists. Be familiar with the narrative. Be familiar with the critiques of the narrative. Uh, that's number one. Number two, I would say familiarize yourself with all of the high hallmarks of Western culture, because literally right now everybody has been put into the position of being professors of the humanities to hand down all of this inheritance that we have in Western culture. And, and by inheritance, yeah, I'm, I'm saying everybody from Bach to the Beatles, everybody from uh, Rembrandt to Salvador Dali, you know, familiarize yourself with these monuments of our culture and why they're there uh, and hand it down. Same with literature, the same with the sciences. You know, we're, we're being called upon, I think, to the degree that we are each individually capable of, of having to be Renaissance men again and to transmit this to, to our, our progeny because the system is no longer doing it. Yeah. The system has is, is been set up precisely to counteract that. So we have to take responsibility for it ourselves as individuals and, and make sure it gets done. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, well, again, a couple little well-said spots there. Yeah, it's you know, it's it's um, it's not a position any of us wanted to be in, I'm sure. But like it or not, it's the position we've been put into. And if we don't, if we don't wake up and realize that this is now our current responsibility, then we're in danger of losing this civilization. And you know. What is there to replace it? There isn't any other good thing out there to replace it. It has huge problems and faults that the the elites themselves have created. So the the goal here ultimately is to create a uh, a new pool out of which a a new class of of leaders can emerge. Because the current class, I mean, look at them. Look at them. Cameron, Hollande, Merkel, Obama, Bush. Look at these people. They're idiots. <laughs> they, they, they are not culturally grounded in anything even remotely resembling the roots of this civilization. When I run into people in this country that are more in favor of Vladimir Putin than they are of any Western leaders, that should tell you something. Yeah, it's so and, hard to it's hard to it's hard to 
talk to people about this stuff though, right? You yeah. try, you try and, you know, and I try to talk to people and there's some that are interested, but they, or they, they kind of agree with you, but they don't really care as much or, or they're, or they just don't even get it. They're so brainwashed by the mainstream media. And I'm not trying to be critical or judgmental, no, but, but it's just, it's, uh, it's like something's got to click with people. But cultural, cultural revolutions are never made by the 90%. They're made by the 10%. They're made by the Charles Darwin's and Albert Einstein's and Rembrandt's and Velasquez's and, you know, Percy Shelley's and, 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 and J.S. Box. They're made by individuals with, that are deeply grounded in the culture and in the civilization and have their own creative genius. So that's what we've got to cultivate in ourselves and in others. And the, with the full knowledge that 90% of the people we come into contact with aren't going to be interested. They're yeah. simply, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's just our, our, our culture is just blending though with the internet and with technology. It's just right. all blending into, to one thing. We're all so connected now. Like we're, that's not, that's not a bad thing. <clears throat> no, I, I think it's a good thing. That's, it's just hard to, that's going to be the new, you know, part of our new culture. Right. If, if right. we don't lose it. Yeah, we can't lose. We if we're if we're to have a future, we can't lose our past. So we we've got to be we've got to become more familiar with the details of the emergence of this culture that that we call European or Western or what have you. Um, and I would include Russia with that, obviously. Mm -hmm. But um, we we've simply got to do it uh, to the degree that we're each able and capable of doing so. You know, if I had children. Uh, you know, I'd be homeschooling them and, and they'd be getting a, a very healthy dose of, of the high marks in our, in our culture. Uh, because you can't understand, you can't understand how we got here without understanding the past. And we're not going to have a future unless we have a vision of something that we want to hold on to. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Well, that's been great, Joseph. I mean, I, I listened to you eight or 10 years ago on a podcast and it's one of those, those rare moments where I, I remember where I was at the time. Actually, I was, I was waiting for somebody <laughs> at the Vancouver airport and, and then you just you blew my mind. And it was one of those podcasts on like Nazi technology and you kind of want to probably, it was probably like about the bell and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I've always been in the back of my mind. Uh, and since we started up, this America show, you know, we've wanted to talk to you and I, I can't believe we waited three years to get you on here, but um, it's just been great chatting with you. Well, thanks for having me on, guys. I appreciate it. Yeah, we'll have to have you back down the, on, down the road again for another couple sure. hours because we didn't even touch on uh, Giza, Desta, or Egypt or anything like that. Oh, yeah, there's there's a lot of books. Uh, my last count, I think I'm at an even two dozen books right now. So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so. yeah we'll, we'll touch base with you next year when you've come out with a few more. <laughs> oh, no, and you don't knows, have to wait for a whole year. <laughs> and who knows where uh, where we'll be, be at in the uh, evolution of geopolitics and Maybe war. the internet won't even be a thing anymore. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to get you on the ham. <laughs> <laughs> that's right <laughs> buy right. your shirtwaves now <laughs> yeah well we'll put all this uh, all the links in the show notes and everything and I'll, we'll send you a copy when we uh, when we publish it Joseph alright thanks a lot yeah guys. thanks a lot buddy okay bye bye and that was our chat with uh, Joseph Farrell Did that could say? be my all time favorite is it? I could oh, be. I seen you getting all horny over there. Well, not, no, just because it, it's pelvic uh, thrusting. Uh, oh, <laughs> 
<laughs> I was just doing arm pumping. That's not. I was doing that. Arm yeah, pump. that instantly translate to pelvic thrust. No, it doesn't. Yeah. It's an arm pump. The double arm pump is, yeah. a, is a thrust. It's actually a thrust. Well, I didn't mean it to be that way. Oh, yeah. I was excited because it was it was great to hear his articulation of the whole global global thing. It kind of some things kind of clicked. Some things clicked for me. Like put some thing pieces together. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, it was just a great chat. I love the way Floaty's so knowledgeable about all that stuff. And yeah, we'll definitely have to have him back and get into geese and uh, yeah, for, stuff and we like didn't that. really get into zero point energy or or like the Nazi like specifics of not Nazi technology and stuff like that. But it was kind of appropriate for where we're at politically right now that we kind of stayed where we were and yeah. all those all those things. So, anyways, for people. That want that weekly dose of Joseph, like his news and views from the Nefarium are, is great. It's like, it reminds me of the Corbett report. Like it's another great little thing where he'll put these uh, geopolitical pieces together and then he'll speculate about what's going on. And the speculation is very interesting. There you have it. Yeah. Head on over so to thanks, his website. Buddy. The link will be in the show notes. Head over to his website. He's, I'm sure he's, I think he's got a newsletter you can sign up for as well. Yeah. Yeah, and a member and stuff. And it reminds me of the community we're building here as well, right? People can contribute and he 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 partakes in the whole thing, right? He doesn't just sit back and watch. Yeah. Watch the money roll in. Yeah, exactly. With no money. <laughs> Speaking of money, check out grammarica.ca slash upgrade. There's probably a week or two left to get uh, I think there's about thirty five tickets left. Uh get one for twenty three for 50 for your chance to come on the show with an iPad and uh, some Grimerica swag. Um, and Grimerica.ca slash upgrade. Uh, Grimerica.ca slash support to sign up for a monthly over there. Uh, spam Graham. Spam Graham. G-R-A-H-A-M at Grimerica.com. H. H. For ham. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, what else? Send in, uh, send in your stuff. Yeah, there's a PO box there if you want to mail in something. Oh, what is the other thing I wanted to mention as well that we don't really mention a lot? That a fist pump, voicemail, voicemail. There's voicemail on the page now. Yeah, yeah, is there? Yeah, yeah, there's a button. uh, The blogs. I can't remember. There was something else that was unique that I wanted to mention. But anyways, whatever. Tell your friends about this show. Thanks for listening, guys. And we will see you next week.
say they like coast to coast. But on demand, raw and uncut interviews, and all without no ads. Once it's false and once says true, and the rate you sing grows too. America, America is here for you. Stories from the listeners, they sent to Graham. He'll read them and be amazed, but Darren may say no. One says red and one says blue, but if it's false, it just won't do. For America. America.